Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Wednesday, September 7th, and it's time for another episode of After Hours with Kevin and Lauren. We will take all of your health-related calls and questions. We're going to open the phone lines right now, so line them up, 855 950 Lauren's in the house, and we're going to bring her on right now. Lauren, welcome back. Hi, Kevin. Good to be here. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. Happy end of summer. That's kind of sad, isn't it? Yes. It is. I feel like it just started, and all of a sudden, it's it's going by. It's, it's, it's pretty gone. much over. I know it's gone already. It's like, wait, wait a minute. I wasn't even sure it started yet. I know. It's wild. I mean, I know that you had a, a late start, didn't you? I did because I was on the road. Uh, I didn't get back till like the second week in May. So I, I it, that was kind of my open this morning. I actually learned something about the garden this year. I don't know. Did you get a chance to listen to the open today? It wasn't the open. I hopped in a little later, probably like 15 or 20 in. Yeah, so I got a, what I thought was a really late start in the garden. I was in like panic mode. So my plan, you know, each year I learn a little more about the garden and I'm still fairly new at this. So I, you know, try to have a plan and I try to make next year better than this year and always trying to learn new things. So my plan last year was I had my greenhouse, my grow room all set up. I wanted to be in the greenhouse on March 1st, getting plants ready to go into the ground like the second or third week in April, which is typically when I start planting. Uh, but I didn't get home until the mm-hmm. second week in May. Now I've got cleanup in the garden to do. It's a mess. I feel like I'm behind and I just wanted to get plants into the ground. So I rushed some plants into the ground thinking they're re- really late. But I I had a couple examples where I put some stuff in the ground right away when I could, thinking that I was already late. And then because I was so busy, a couple weeks later, I put some more of the same plants in the ground or, or planted seed. And in every case, the stuff I planted later all did better. And I thought, wow, I know. I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? Everything I read about gardening is always this focus on getting a plant in the ground as soon as you can. You know, you look up individual plants. When should I plant my beans? Well, they always give you that first day. Like this is the first day you can get it. And we always focus on that. What are we in such a hurry for? Why? Now I understand why this doesn't work. So if you take a plant that's an annual, we know you plant it, it grows, it matures, and it dies. That's what an annual is. A Mm -hmm. perennial, you put it in the ground and it grows, and as long as you have the right conditions, it will keep growing year after year after year. It'll come back. Um, Some of our perennials, like peppers, pepper plants are actually perennial, they'll die because it's too cold, and then you have to start over. So Mm -hmm. last year, I actually brought pepper plants into the garage and left them in the garage all winter, and one of them survived. And then I replanted it and it, oh. yeah, it's growing again. Um, no, I, I didn't re- replant it. I had them in grow boxes. So I just moved the grow boxes outside. Some of them died and I'm not sure if I did it right. I, I forgot. I don't know if I'm supposed to water them and I didn't. Um, I didn't. Yeah. So may, I'm going to go back and read on how to do that because I may try that again this year. But here's the thing. If the plant is an annual, 
So the, the plant is designed so that you put a seed in the ground, it grows the plant, it produces fruit, and then the plant dies. And it's gone forever and you start over again next year with the new seed. Those plants are programmed to live a certain number of days. That's how it works. And that you even know what the days are. You know, you buy a variety and it's 55 days to maturity. Or the same, you know, you can have a cucumber that matures in 55 days. Another variety might be 70. But we have a, we have a number. We know when that plant's going to mature. So instead of this idea that we just have to get it into the ground as soon as possible, my theory is we should look at our growing season, look at the plant we want to put in the ground, and instead of starting off with what's the first day I can put it in, I now start off with what is the last day I could still harvest something from that. The exact opposite. Now, when I look at the last day, all I have to do is subtract the number. So if it's a 70 days to maturity and the last day that I should probably have this in my garden, let's say it's, you know, September 15th. Well, now I can back up from September 15th and say, well, okay, this is the latest I could plant this plant, not the earliest. I don't want to know the earliest. And now my goal is to put the plant in the ground when it will have the most good days of weather. So what happened to the stuff that Mm -hmm. I planted early? So I planted onions, for example, on a certain date, and then I planted onions again three weeks later. The plants that I did Mm -hmm. three weeks later were four times bigger. Wow. Because the original you, what, did it have anything to do with it? that I put in the ground. Think did about it get this. Cold again? Yeah, I, I put the plants yeah. in the ground and it's there's no frost. There's no danger the plant's going to die. But we had three uh-huh. weeks of cloudy, cold weather. Well, that's three weeks of growth mm-hmm. that plant can't get back. It's yeah, still going to true. die at the same time it would die if I planted it in good conditions. So I don't know why this focus in gardening is get the plant in as soon as possible. I don't know why we do that. This is, look at your growing season, figure out the last, you know, your, your, okay, so here's the beginning. Here's as soon as I could do it. Here's as late as I can do it. Now I just want to watch the weather forecast and I don't want to put that plant in the ground until the weather's good. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. It worked. Very I have, interesting. I know. I have uh, several beans that did that. I put my first crop of peas I put in the ground so early I didn't get anything. Hmm. I got no harvest from my first crop of peas at all. Part of it was because it was so cold and wet, the slugs were everywhere and they just devoured them. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, it was a slug thing with the peas. But I again, it's like, why it, it's almost like we we focus on the wrong thing and i'm talking people you know i've taken courses from people who are master gardeners for 50 years no but i've never seen anybody else approach it this way mm-hmm. yeah i haven't heard of anyone approach it that way which was always interesting to me because i feel as though and i could be completely wrong this is just my opinion is that i feel like our seasons seem to be starting a few weeks later you know, than, than they used to. I don't know 
if it's just me. Now, there, our, our weather has, yeah, our weather has clearly changed in my lifetime. In a lot of ways, in a lot of areas, yeah. a lot of things have gotten very different. So you're right. The, the seasons are changing somewhat, and the, the growing window is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's how I feel. And I feel as though it, they're changing like they're a little bit later. And if that's the case, then that would go perfectly with what, you know, with the new theory you have to, put, you know, plan them a few weeks later. But, um, but yeah, it, it just, for whatever reason, I feel like when spring started, it was so cold, even here in Florida. And then, you know, summer hit. And now, for me, it is still really hot. But the little thing I've noticed is uh, early morning, like right when the sun's coming up, and at dusk, it seems to be just the tiniest bit, little little bit of relief from the heat. Right, right, um, yeah. So, yeah, but it is. It seems to be shifted a few weeks, and and yeah. So if that's the case, no. planning it on a planning things on a certain date is not going to really work out. Yeah. Well, here's the here's the exception to that. Here's another way to look at it. We have a long enough growing season where I'm at because it's pretty mild here that I can do two full crops of beans. What I mean is if I plant my first crop of beans early enough, they'll mature, harvest, and die. And in that same spot of ground, I can start a second round of beans and they'll mature before the end of the season. So I can get two crops of beans. But that first crop isn't very successful. The second one always does much better. I should have realized that over the years, that my second crop always does way better. So there may be some cases where I think, well, I'd really like to get two crops in this year, so I'll do one early, and I know it won't do as good. But on the other hand, it's a lot less work to wait a little bit and get one good crop sometimes. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So are you are you harvesting everything like currently harvesting everything? Oh boy, it, it yeah. I I'm thinking I might have to hire a crew. So for the last month, we've <laughs> we really eat out of the garden every day. I mean, there there's whatever. Yeah. I mean, we have tons of stuff coming out of the garden for the last month. So we're eating out of the garden every day. We're we just actually Lisa and I just looked at it yesterday and said we're going to have to start processing tomatoes next weekend. We can't put it off anymore. I've got tomatoes that are I'm trying to leave them as long as I can so that I get a bigger crop maturing at the same time. But I'm starting to get tomatoes just falling <laughs> off the plant. They're that ripe. So, okay. yeah, I walk, wow. I walk the tomato patch, you know, and pick up tomatoes all day long. And so this weekend, we're going to have to start processing tomatoes. Um, I think I said I, um, I was estimating like 4,000 tomatoes. Did we talk about that mm-hmm. once? Yeah. Um, I might have to yeah. revise that estimate. The The least number of tomatoes I've found on a plant so far is like 41. But I also found a plant that had 82 tomatoes. Whoa. And I have about 100 wow. plants. So I really think that 6,000 is probably a better guess. And my pepper plants, I've never seen anything like it. They, there's so many peppers on them, they look like they're going to fall over from the weight. Uh, and I have 75 or 80 of those. Wow. Yeah, so it's, it's 
we're like planning out how do you process this many tomatoes you know and then make all the sauces Mm -hmm. we're going to make so i'm kind of in a dilemma um i don't think for the next month that i'm going to get much work done on projects work work stuff because Mm -hmm. the garden's cranking and i've got to deal with it there's a lot to do out there and i'm committed to getting as good as i possibly can on my foil before the season ends so i don't have to feel like i'm starting all over next spring Oh, that's actually a good call. Yeah. If you committed, you kind of have to fully, I, I, fully commit. Yeah. So like, I want to hear a little bit about that. Oh, well, did you hear about my first two attempts? Yeah. Yeah. I right. heard about the attempt last week when you, the wind and the, and the river flow was, I think, opposite or that something. That was the first day. Did not make perfect. Uh, yeah, that was a disaster. Okay. Okay. That was the first day. So the second day. Um, the wind shifted and I decided to go to about 20 minutes down river. The winds were better down there. So I went to Hood River, um, at, got up on the board, couldn't get the board up on the foil. So when the board surfs kind of surfing on the surface of the water, there's, there's just a lot of drag there. It's really hard. And the idea is you get the board out of the water and you come up on the foil. So, I'm up on the board, so I kind of figured that out. I can stand up. I can get my wing in the right place. The wind's dragging me through the water. Um, But I I can't quite get up on the foil yet. And I I was getting tired. I'd been out there a couple hours. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go in. I'm going to take a break. I need to get something to cover my head. I'm getting sunburned. Um, So I walk up on shore, and they have these places where you tie up your board and your kite. You can't let your kite, you can't let go of it or your wing. Um, they're dangerous in the wind. They'll okay, take they'll off. And, yeah. And they'll take off. And so you, you tie all this stuff down in the water. They have these little anchor points. So I tie the board down, but you have to flip the board upside down because the water's too shallow here. My foil would be dragging in the sand. So you just flip the board upside down and your foil sticking up in the air. Well, that foil has really sharp edges. They call it the guillotine. Um, so I, t- oh, yeah. I tie the board up and I'm standing there holding my wing, getting ready to tie it up. And I got a big gust of wind and I let go with the wrong hand. I panicked and my wing went right into the foil and I heard it tear. And I'm like, oh, I can't believe I did that. Oh. You heard the noise and it would, yeah. So I panic and I grab it and I try to pull it off the foil, but I'm in a 25 knot wind. You can't budge this thing. I managed to pull it just enough off the foil that when the wind gusted again, I heard a new tear. And I thought, oh, oh so, my God. so dummy me, I did it again. Pulled it off. It ripped three big tears in my wing. Oh, no. Yeah. So, luckily. So what do you do? Those are not inexpensive. Oh, no. But luckily, this is a big enough thing that right in Hood River, there are repair shops. You don't even have to go inside. I found one. Oh, they, they, have, they have lockers outside, and you scan a code. You fill out a form online, stick your wing in the locker, and they send you an email when it's fixed. So, I'm hoping it's fixed today. Great. Yeah. Great, great. Yeah. So, tore up my wing already. I can't believe it. I know. Oh, my goodness. I know. Well, lesson learned. Uh, yeah. Um, 
And I guess this is a common thing. When I went to the shop that I bought it at, I said, boy, I hope you can fix these things. And he said, we don't fix them, but there's a place right down the street. And I said, I can't believe I already tore this thing up. It was my second day. And he said, don't worry about it. He said, I've been doing this since the wings came out. And he said, I was just taking a brand new wing down to the water and slipped on the rock and tore mine up before I even got it in the water. Oh, <laughs> that's way worse. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're pretty delicate. I mean, it's super, super thin, light material. And like I said, you, you got to keep it away from that foil because that thing is sharp. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, I know how sharp those foils are because people put them on the bottom of surfboards. Yes. They have, you know, just regular foils. And they, um, I've seen accidents where, I mean, it looked like it basically scalped the guy. I couldn't believe the amount of staple sketch you get in his head. Yeah, I know. It yeah. was so they, startling. Yeah, they call it the guillotine. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I know why. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That's a a big thing now. I'm seeing surfers that are are doing this on surfboards now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It is because you can catch the, I mean, you basically don't even need a real wave. It doesn't even have to break. Correct. (laughs) You can actually surf and you can surf these things out in the river here sometimes without the wing like you can kind of let your wing go and you can if you've got the other thing you can do you can surf one of these boards on a boat's wake oh yeah i never thought about that do you guys have i mean the river's really wide there right oh right where i am and this by isn't the widest part by far but it's probably a good half mile where i am Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, um, and that's not even the widest part. So you, so there's boats in there. Well, we have big, we have big uh, cruise ships that come down. There are several cruise lines that run river cruises here. We have barges. Yeah. We, and, and you can see somebody they'll, they'll use the wing to get out to the middle and then they'll, and we have like, uh, we have a little uh, paddle wheel tourist boat that runs out of town here and that creates a big enough wake and you kind of get behind them into their wake and then you just let your wing go kind of flat behind you and you actually ride the wake. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Very cool. I yeah. didn't realize now, you guys had cruise ships. I thought, I thought you were we, making a joke. For a oh, second. no, we actually have we have several cruise lines. National Geographic runs a really interesting cruise on this river. You're out there with the scientists. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, they have a scientific cruise that they do, and you're out there with the, the you know, wildlife people and the fish people, and they do experiments, and you learn. And, uh, yeah, there are several, several big cruise lines that run up and down the river here. Um you're you're like into surfing, right? Yeah. So I always thought and, it was uh, really cool. Well, when yesterday they, was the first day we've had. We, we when we have we've actually have waves right now, which is great because all summer it's like a lake flat where yeah, we are. It's, it's just flat. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so I always thought it was so, uh, really cool the way they go after the giant waves. Like they have to get towed out with a jet ski oh. and then the jet ski starts towing them. Cause you've got to get enough speed going before that big wave catches up to you. Yeah. 
You've seen that, I'm sure, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I think that is so cool. Oh, yeah. There's one on Maui called, they call it Jaws. There's one in Northern California at Half Moon Bay that they call Maverick. And there's one in Portugal called Nazare. Yeah, there's a bunch. So bunch if, of really um, big waves like that. Uh, you know, Sarah Pingle and Vic. Vic was a professional surfer. Yes. Oh, no way. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, he had sponsorships and all kinds Where? of stuff. California. Oh, very yeah. cool. Yeah. California. Awesome. Yeah, so one of the new things I just started hearing about is they're taking these wings to use on a surfboard, and instead of having a jet ski tow them out, they're using the wing. Oh, no way. I haven't yeah. seen that yet. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I guess as long as you're getting enough speed. Okay, so then what do they do with the wing? Do they let go of it? No, you actually, all you have to do, you can either tie your leash to the very front handle, or you can actually just kind of hold it behind your head by that front handle. And then it kind of mm-hmm. flies like a wing. There's no real resistance against it. It kind of flies like a wing. And then you grab the back handle and kind of pull the back in and turn it into a sail. But if if you just let it kind of feather out behind you, it just kind of flies behind you like a wing. Oh, cool. Yeah, it'll just right. like follow you. And there's no, it's not pulling, it's no resistance. So you're just kind of towing it behind you on the leash and it's just back there. So I guess they, you know, you can Very use cool. the wind to get you out far enough for the big wave. And then you can use the wind to get your speed up. Like you said, you got to get, you, you almost have to match the speed of that wave. Okay. Yes, definitely. Yeah. That makes sense. Actually. Same thing if you're on a boat and you're, you know, and you're going to let go of the the rope, you definitely have to catch, you know, the the right amount of speed. And then, you know, as you start to slow down, then you can pump the board down to get, you know, back in place and whatnot. That you can, the wing has this motion where you can kind of pump the wing a little bit and you kind of scoop air into it and you can increase speed like that too. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Very cool. Yeah. So, so how long, how oh, long do you do this for? At, how long, like how many more months or it's like, what's your limit in terms of how long you can do this before the season's over where you are? You know, here's kind of the crazy thing. It, it's almost like if you're willing to deal with really cold water, the season almost never ends here. I've seen people out in December and January. Wow. We don't get as many good wind days in the winter. Our winds tend to be east winds um, in the winter. And an east wind is hard for us because the river's flowing east. And if the wind is blowing that way, uh, it makes it really difficult to work back upstream. So, but if you're good, I see people that can do it. I wouldn't even attempt that yet. That was the thing the other day, my first day out, we had an east wind. We get them occasionally in the summertime. We get them a lot more in the wintertime. But I've seen people out in the middle of winter when we get a good wind day. I've seen them out there. Are you wearing a wetsuit right now? I do wear a wetsuit and an impact vest because the crashes can get pretty gnarly. 
Yeah, I'm actually happy to hear that you're doing that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the full wetsuit, if nothing else, if you just banged against this guillotine, you'd be bleeding. So the wetsuit will protect you quite a bit from that. And then, like I say, I do wear an impact vest because the crashes are pretty spectacular. Right now, I'm not wearing a helmet. A lot of people do. And if I get to the point where I'm catching air and doing stuff like that, I may put a helmet on. Um, but, the, mm-hmm. you know, when I learned how to barefoot, the same thing. I wore an impact suit. The crashes are just brutal. You know, you hit the water at 35 or 40 miles an hour and it's like hitting a wall. Yeah, might as well be cement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I wear a, a, a shorty wetsuit now, a summer weight shorty and then the impact vest. Got um, it. But I will probably go buy a pretty heavily insulated winter suit and really see how far I can push the season. But during, cool. during in, in January, <laughs> our water temperature will be under 40. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah, cold. It, it's cold. It's cold. Well, that'll be my, uh, that, <laughs> I won't have to take cold showers. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so what I'll do is I'll just go down when I'm getting ready to go, you know, foiling in the wintertime. I'll just go down and before I put my wetsuit on, I'll just do my cold plunge. Oh, my goodness. There you go. Yeah. Then I'll put the wetsuit on and what go a way have to fun. Start. I know. That's, that'll wake you up, huh? <laughs> Oh, yeah. That'll do it. Yeah. All right. We, uh, Matt's on the line. Should we talk to him? Definitely. All right. Let's. Matt, welcome. Hey, good afternoon. Hey, did you hear, um, about, did you hear about the you excitement did. at your house today? <laughs> oh, yeah. When you <laughs> talked about it on the radio, there was a last-minute emergency. <laughs> I had a feeling when I, I said it for you, I had a feeling when I said it, you'd be like, what, what's going on at my house? Cause when I, when I, you know, when I'm getting ready for the, to do the show and I talk to Angie and I'll say something like, does Matt know that? And she'll be like, no, I never tell him anything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, everybody lets me, our, our son, Got sick, tested positive for COVID yesterday, and uh, had a, a vomiting issue this morning. So, <laughs> oh no! I've heard that's popular. That that's going with the COVID these days. That a lot of people are getting nauseous. And huh? I didn't remember that no. being a thing before. Now that seems like a new thing. Wonder if that's the new variant. Yeah. Yeah, I no. agree. Oof. So yeah, uh, you're explaining your gardening um, this year. The the results from the planting time. Yeah, I think you did a better job here this second time. But I, I just want to clarify. I think you understand it, but I'm not sure you're explaining it quite right. That I it's might not, not understand the calendar it. date itself. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's not so much the calendar date; it's the weather. Yes. No, no, I do understand that. You're right. I I didn't explain that, but it is. Yeah, it has nothing to do with the calendar. It's the weather you you are expecting. Yeah. Yeah, your your late planting was your bumper crop this year. Next year could be your early planting. Correct. 
right right do a soil temperature and yeah sunlight and yeah, not not the calendar oh, date itself. That, there, or the there's or ending of the season. Yeah. You're right. I didn't explain as well as I could have. There's another example. Early in the spring, your days are shorter. You're not going to get as much growth happening. But again, you're wasting those days. That plant only has so many days it can be in the ground, and the goal would be. And and we can't predict this perfectly because you just this is a weather thing. It's not a date thing. And weather changes all the time. My point is, why does the whole gardening industry in every article I read about or any time I, you know, search when should I play, everybody focuses on that first day. Why don't they explain? Here's your window. Figure out what the window is in your area. When, when do you expect your last frost? When do you expect your first frost? What's the window for growing this plant? And then... Again, it's not perfect because we can't predict the weather, but we can watch it. We can, you know, we can get a pretty accurate forecast for 10 days and we should be paying attention to when in that window is best. And it seems to me like we should not be focusing on getting it in as soon as possible. We should almost be thinking the opposite. Don't be so impatient. Let's wait and see what the weather's doing. Yeah. Oh, so living in Minnesota, of course, we have a shorter growing season. And so that is always a big push, you know, try to get it in as early as True. possible, right. even taking right. the risk of, of getting a late frost and having to replant and, you know. Um, so I think it is because that the early is your best growing season. With the, with the expanding daylight and the warming soil temperatures, that you're going to get your best growth. You but see, on a year like this year, if, I mean, in different parts of the country, we had a really tough spring, too. Really cloudy, rainy, cold. So the early planting this year didn't do good. But on other years, the early planting has the best growth. Well, and, and again, this is going to be different, different areas, different years. There's so many variables here. But my experience now that I look back on the last several years of planting, and we, we have the beauty of a long season. I can be planting things in April. Peas, cabbage, I can plant the cold weather stuff in April most years. And I can still harvest stuff into December sometimes like peas and cabbage, if I started them early enough that they started to flower and mature before the days get too short, they'll hold up in the cold weather. So they'll start to really, really slow down, but they'll continue to mature. And I can harvest into December, peas and cabbage. But I looked back, spring is not a good time for us to grow, even in the good years. It, it seems to me like in April, the days are still just too short. I'm not getting a lot of growth. You know, my peas that I start really early, they don't get very big and they don't produce a lot of peas. Now, they're always really, really good. They're super sweet because peas like that cold weather. But when the, the next planting I do in May, they grow better. And now I see the stuff that I planted in June did even better than that. And even on a good year, I would think, I know, you know, I can get plants in the ground. I get them in the ground and they sit there and they do nothing for like the first three weeks. Yeah. And 
that's very possible. Like say it's every part of the country is going to be wildly different, even though we live in central Minnesota, as far as North to South. And it's hard to tell on a map, but we're probably about dead. Even with you should be pretty close. Yeah. I have to look up. The, no, I yeah, bet it, I bet it's pretty close just because of the jet stream. Right. Yeah. And all that are, our, our temperatures are much, much colder. Yeah, we, we are moderated so from yeah, the your, ocean. Your sunlight is the same. Yeah. But our, but our sunlight has got to be really close to the same. Right. The length of day is, is pretty pretty identical. Yep. Right, right. Now, this year, that was our problem. This year, all of May and June was cloudy just could not get enough sun to grow anything but like i said even on the good years i noticed my first couple weeks plants are in the ground they do almost nothing here's something else i'm really really shocked about yeah here's something else i'm really shocked about and i've absolutely proven this now in fact I, i i just think i'm going to stop buying plants from the nurseries and I, I say every year, I'm, everything from seed this year, I'm not going to buy any plants. And then I feel like I'm late. So I think, all right, I, I'm going to go buy some plants just so I can get started. The plants that I buy from nurseries and the plants that I start myself from seed, they're not even close. My plants do three or four times better. Why? I, I would think, I used to think it's almost the opposite. These these places have to have this down to a science. They know exactly what fertilizers to use and timing, and their plants should be awesome. And they look amazing. You know, you see these this flat. They're all perfect. They're same height. They're nice and healthy looking. And yet, I'll walk through my garden right now, and I can tell you exactly which plants came from the nursery and which ones I started. My pepper plants are probably... 50% bigger than anything I started from the nursery. Why is that? Why are my plants so much healthier when I start them from seed? It's genetics and everything grown commercially has been micromanaged to the point where they know how to make it perfect in the greenhouse setting. Once you put it outside, they struggle. It doesn't have the ability. Yeah, they, they struggle. They struggle. They only they only do great in perfect situations. Maybe that's you give it. Give them any yeah. variance, and then they they fall on their face. So. Yeah, maybe that's it. So you know, and and buying plants at the nursery is really expensive. If you think you're going to save money by gardening, you better not be buying your plants from a nursery. You pay six dollars a plant sometimes. Wow. Yeah. Going to say too, Lauren, with you living in Florida, how wildly different it is. I don't know how many people realize, but so Florida spring is the dry time of the year, and yeah. a lot of a lot of natural plants actually kind of do their their final die off in the spring, and then once the rainy season starts, you know, closer to summer, that's when everything really livens up in Florida. Yeah, we had a really dry. Um, spring and, and summer. Most of our summer was pretty dry until about a month and a half, two months ago. And that, now yeah, it's, no, it's really so wet. wet. <laughs> yeah. There's so much different fungi growing in our yard and some stuff I've never seen before. Like this I, 
like fluorescent orange sludge. I'm like, what is that? Lauren, I, yeah, there's some interesting stuff. I, I remember that stuff from Florida. I would wake up some mornings and go walk outside and think, oh my God, aliens landed on my lawn. Yes. <laughs> the stuff is so bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, there's some weird stuff. When, when Florida starts getting really wet, some weird stuff appears. <laughs> yes, it's true. The good news is, oh, in the yeah. woods, I've been harvesting a bunch of uh, chanterelles. Oh, uh, nice. As, every time I go out, yeah, like every weekend, we, we end up with uh, dinner's worth of them. So that's been a, that's been a nice treat. Yeah, that's but wonderful. Yeah, the, the weather is amazing. Yeah. The weather's different here. <laughs> yeah, the last couple of weeks, the rain and later nights getting in, the humidity is so bad. I'm running my windshield wipers at night just to just to clear the fog <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've been pretty lucky, too. I don't know if Angie's been out this year but last year did really good uh we got some woodland and chicken of the wood um some of the other mushrooms she found quite a bit of and a little saute that in the butter that's that's good stuff hey matt i was just thinking about you and angie the other day um remember when you guys had everything going on the garden the pigs just all kinds of stuff when when are you going to get back to that I I miss <laughs> I miss my soap and my maple syrup. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, most of that we did. I mean, it was all my idea and stuff I want to do, and I kind of forced the kids <laughs> to do it. <laughs> chores growing up, you know, as a, as a learning experience. But now with the the kids, the oldest two have already left the house, and the youngest is going to be 18 years soon and yeah. a senior in high school. And so, yeah, it's, if, if I'm not there to do it, it's, uh, it's not well, going to done. You had the pig. The, the animal part of it. Yeah. yeah, your pork was excellent. But Angie was also making soap from the pork lard, which was just amazing soap. I love yep. that stuff. And I was blown away. I have tasted maple syrup from all over the place. Canada, every, you know, Maine, everywhere have tasted super high-end premium organic maple syrups and, you know, different grades. And you handed me a mason jar with maple syrup and said, you know, here, actually gave me a couple of them and said, here, I got these off my trees. I'm not exaggerating. This is the best maple syrup I've ever had in my life. I don't know why. I don't know what you did. What, 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 it was just really, really good syrup. And those, that all came from my mom's property. Those weren't even what they claim are the high quality trees. So the, the sugar maple is what they call the highest quality, which is a hardwood. And then there's also a red maple, which are just beautiful trees in the fall. They're, they're really bright red. Oh, I love the, those. The sugar maples have, you know, an orangish, reddish look. Right. Um, my mom has called a silver maple and that those leaves turn yellow in the fall but the silver maple they say is a lower quality tree it's a soft wood but it's 
sure makes good maple syrup, in my opinion. That syrup was excellent. Yeah, it was really good. No. And yeah, we got we got plenty of maple trees on the, on the land we bought too. So oh, good. Someday good. I'll get back into that also. That's right. Good. All right. What else you got today? All righty. That will do it for me. All right. We will talk to you soon. Um, we're out of questions. If somebody wants to jump in now, you can. Um, Lauren, do you have a topic today? No, I thought that we would just kind of shoot from the hip today. Good. I like that. But I did have a few things to kind of talk about if uh, we needed some topics, of course. Well, we should <laughs> but decide. I wanted to ask you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about salmon. Do you, do you eat a lot of salmon? If you do, where are you getting it from? I love salmon. I don't eat as much as I probably... Lisa likes salmon if all the conditions are right. It's just, it's one of those mm-hmm. things. If she's hungry and I get a good fresh piece and I grill it the right way with the right marinade, she loves it. But if anything's a little off, mm-hmm. then she's not that excited about it. So we don't eat salmon a lot. And I tend to eat it more often. Um, like there's a lot of days Lisa will get on to work at the warehouse and I'm at home working. Because mm-hmm. if she's home, we eat lunch together. Um, if she's not here, I'll almost always eat seafood for lunch because I, I love salmon. Um, I can get mm-hmm. it right here. Actually, the river I'm looking at right now, right in front of me and where I go foiling, um, this is the largest mm-hmm. single run salmon in the world. Wow. Right in front of my house. Very cool. Yeah. Now, Alaska. So you guys get fresh. You have a lot. Yeah, Alaska produces a lot more salmon than Oregon does, but for a one river, there is no river in Alaska Mm -hmm. that produces more salmon than uh, Columbia does. They just have a lot of rivers. So, yeah, we have a huge salmon run here. Um, I keep threatening to go get a little boat and some equipment, do my own fishing, but um, it's kind of cool. We have the Native Americans that they really kind of – you know, settled this whole area, the whole gorge. So still a big thing. They, there's almost no rules for them fishing there. They can fish almost anytime mm-hmm. they want. They can take native fish, um, not just hatchery fish. They can take native fish. They can use a net. Um, there, there's almost no rules. So just about any time I want salmon, I can just go down into town and there's three or four people I know. I, I used to call them. And say, hey, I've, I've got a, you know, a dinner party on Friday. Um, you know, I want like 20 pounds worth of salmon. And he'd call me on Friday morning and he'd say, what time do you want me to pull it out of the river? Oh, my God. Yeah. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, no, really. And I'd say, well, I think I'm going to be ready for it for, you know, at about three o'clock this afternoon. And he shows up at 2.30 with two nice big king salmon all gutted and cleaned and ready to go. Wow, that was going to be my next question: is if it um, if you knew what kind of salmon? So yes. where you are, it's king salmon. Well, no, we have four. Which is known. To we have four possibilities. We have four seasons. Oh, you have four. Oh, really? Yeah. 
So we could have a run of all four types. There's basically four types of wild Pacific salmon. You have king, which is the granddaddy of them all. Kings get really big. Uh They have a really high fat content. So king salmon is my absolute favorite. So I love when the kings are running. Then we have, here's the other thing. There's at least two different names for every species of of salmon and it gets confusing we have the anglo word and then there's the indian word the native american word so got it a king god i used to know this by heart now i've kind of i think a king is called a chinook also you know i'm gonna look this up so i I get it right i hate when i'm wrong Uh, salmon names so there's four (laughs) varieties oh actually i just opened an article and it says there's six so which ones did wow. I not know about? Oh, okay. I understand. Now I get it. Here's why there's six. Uh, Chinook is king. Coho is silver. I believe we might call coho silver. There's sockeye salmon. Okay. I forget what, what the other name for mm-hmm. sockeye is. And then there's pink. So those are the four... Pacific varieties that you'll see. There is a fifth actually called um, Kita or Chum or Dog Salmon. It's the least popular because it doesn't have a lot of fat. And it's the <laughs> fat that really makes salmon so good. But I did see, I think, oh yeah, is it Patagonia? Or somebody the other day, so I was actually selling dog salmon. And they were selling it pretty cheap. And it's not bad. It tastes like salmon. It's really good. It just doesn't have a lot of fat content, so you don't see it sold commercially very often. And then the sixth one they're calling is Atlantic salmon. And I tell people, don't ever buy Atlantic salmon. It's almost always farmed. Unless you can get it from, yeah. like, Scotland. You know, you it, the Atlantic okay. over in Scotland, they do actually harvest wild Atlantic salmon. And if I can get wild Atlantic salmon, it's really high in fat. So if you can get wild Atlantic, it's really good. But 99% of the time, if you see Atlantic salmon, it's farm-raised, and it is pure garbage. Like, you shouldn't even eat it. Yeah. Yeah, it's super high in omega-6s when it's farmed. It's, it's just nasty, really. I, we take one of the healthiest foods on the Ugh. planet, and we make it awful. And, and you just really, you just shouldn't even eat yeah. it. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, it's living. Yeah. We don't have to go there. Wild Pacific salmon, from what I understand, are never farmed. Okay. Now, what confuses people, I said earlier, I said native fish and hatchery fish. So, native fish Mm -hmm. have always been wild just out swimming around in the water. We have salmon hatcheries everywhere here. I have one I could walk to. I mean, we have, they're just all over the river. All they're doing is hatching the eggs. When these salmon are tiny, tiny Uh, little salmon, they clip a couple fins off of them so we can identify that they did come from a hatchery and then they let them go. And they take the river out to the ocean. They live out in the ocean for about five years or so. And then they come back up to the river to the exact spot they were born and they, um, they uh, spawn and then they die. Got it. Oh, so that's fine if they're if they're born in a or they're 
like born in a hatchery. Yeah, they're, they're not, going straight out. Yeah, the they're wild. not farm raised. They're just they're born there. They get put out in the wild really early, and they live out in the ocean their whole life. They're wild fish. Okay. Oh, thanks for explaining that because I had no idea that that's how that works. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So that's that's the Pacific, and like I said, the the rating basically is how much fat they have. The the more fat on the salmon, yeah. the more it's prized. And the crazy thing about salmon, when you live out here, you realize that everybody's after the salmon. The birds, the bears, the eagles, the people, everybody's fighting over all the salmon out here. Yeah, for sure. It's a superfood. It really is. Yeah, yeah. And the dam, the Bonneville Dam, which is just a couple miles from my house, you can, the, the fish have to be able to get past the dam. So they build fish ladders. Mm -hmm. All the dams have fish ladders. And it's just these terraced kind of steps. And the water flows over them like a waterfall. And they jump up those steps just like they jump up waterfalls out in the wild. And that's how they get past the dam. So on the Bonneville Dam, as they're swimming to the ladder, they're underwater. And there's a viewing room down in the dam you can go down to. And there are windows there. And you can watch them all swimming by as they're coming up the ladders. And believe it or not, it's somebody's job to count them all. No. (laughs) Yeah. Not only do they have to count them, they have to identify which species of salmon it is because they have to count them by species. They also have to count them by uh, adult or juvenile based on the size. So they have these marks on the window. And as the fish swims by, they have to estimate, was that a juvenile or an adult? Was it a Chinook, a Coho, a Pink, or a Sockeye? And there are a couple other things they have to count. There's also something in the river called Lampiers. They're eels. Those come by oh. the window. Uh, sturgeon. We get big, giant sturgeon in the river. Those will come by. So they actually count the fish every single day, and that's how they determine whether or not to open. Our fishing season opens and closes every day. It might be open today. It might be closed tomorrow. You never know. And it's based on the fish count. Very cool. Yeah. I had no idea. You just completely educated me. <laughs> I didn't know any of this either. And Very I've always neat. loved salmon, but I didn't know any of this till I moved out here. Salmon's a big thing out here. Mm-hmm. Wow. Very neat. Yeah. Kind of fun. I've never been out there, but well, you got to get out here. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I know. You got to get out here. For sure. All right, uh, we've we've got some calls, so I'm going to grab those. I know we might hit on a couple topics, but let's uh, let's talk to some people. Let's go to Indiana. Kyle, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Uh, a question about uh, weight loss and whatnot started about 350 pounds and did real good on it and i got down to about uh, 270 congratulations and i never was perfect you know i had well thank you uh never was perfect but uh you know i had nobody a ice cream once in a while drank a little bit well <laughs> well thank you for saying that too uh, uh you know ice cream once in a while or had a, a piece of pizza once in a while but nothing like it used to be right about a year ago uh year ago uh started creeping back up and i didn't change enough 
still ache the same way. And here I am now right at 300 pounds. What's going on? You know, Lauren, how many times have we dealt with this since we started down this? This is a really common thing. One of the patterns I saw a lot, and you said you didn't change your diet, so we'll come back to that. But one of the patterns we saw a lot, people would start the keto thing, they'd lose crazy amounts of weight. Something would happen in their life and they'd say, well, I fall off the wagon. I went back to eating the way I did. They'd gain the weight right back. We know that. We expect it. That's exactly what's going to happen. Then they would get tired of it and they'd go keto again and they wouldn't get the weight loss. And they would get really frustrated. And we never identified what that was. And we, we had some things we would work through. Well, let's try this. Let's try that. Let's do more fasting. And eventually we would usually be able to break it and they'd go back to losing weight again. That was when they changed the way they ate. You're another example. And we've had this too. People say, but I didn't change the way I ate. Now, here's the thing. We started this in 2014 for the first six years. I don't remember hearing any stories of people saying, I didn't change the way I ate, but my outcome started changing. I don't remember those stories back then. If their outcomes changed, it's because they changed and they admitted it. I know I wasn't eating as clean as I used to, but now I'm back to eating clean and I can't lose the weight. And we would have to work through things and we'd, we'd eventually figure out and fix it. Starting in 2020, I started noticing a pattern when I was doing the discovery calls that there were lots of stories of people who were saying, I did not change anything about the way I ate, and yet my joint pain's back, I'm gaining weight, I don't have the energy I used to have, and we were stumped. It turns out it was all stress. That's why I started working on the stress Mm -hmm. protocol. Because we, we couldn't help these people. Yeah. I mean, we tried everything. We tried the supplements that are supposed to work. Nothing was working. Lauren, since you started doing the discovery calls, how many of these do you deal with? A lot. A lot of people, it's the stress. I just had another one yesterday. I mean, oh, more than, than you would expect. Way more than I, yeah, absolutely. And that's why I guess it's been almost two years ago now that I actually started working on this protocol. Then I broke my hand. Then, I mean, there's been one thing after another, but it's worked out good because it took me a long time to get this protocol right. I'm glad things kept happening and I kept going back to it, kind of starting over because I learned a lot more. But this is the answer now. This is what fixes it. The more of this but, protocol you do and the more often you do it, the better your results will be. But there's nothing that's changed in my life that yeah. would cause more stress. Sure there I, is. Know, what, sure there what is. What do you point to? The world. Well, I know what you're going to say. I exactly. Think. COVID. <laughs> COVID, Maybe politics. Maybe it more than it, I thought. I don't know. I, it affected okay. everybody more than we thought. That's what we determined. That's what we figured out. Okay. And people will tell me all the time, no, you don't understand. I'm pretty laid back. I don't get stressed about things. Yeah, you do. We can point out the markers. We'll, we'll show you where you're getting stressed. Okay. Well, another, another thing, too, that developed at the same time, there's every once in a while I get like a, a slight pain uh, right below my rib cage on the left side. I don't know what left I side never got, you know, never broke a rib. Yes. Sir. Digestive support. That's your, 
stomach. Have you right. done the taking the NutriQ? No. You can take the NutriQ. That would be the first okay. first level of advice is take the NutriQ and sign and you know sign up for a discovery call, and we'll go through and right. look at your digestion because you could be eating an amazing diet and not breaking it yes. down and not be breaking it down properly. All right. Digestion okay. is critical. It's going to be really critical. So, yeah, sorry. We should have probably led with that question. But yeah. if you haven't done a discovery call, that's, that's where you need to start. Because you have to take the NutriQ and see, see what's going on. But if you're having pain there, that's telling me that you most likely are having digestive issues in the upper GI. Um, so if you're eating a lot of proteins, which hopefully you are, yeah, you're not going to be able to I digest am. them properly. Yeah. Now, I agree okay. with Lauren. That's, I, I shouldn't that's, call it pain. Oh, well, what is it then? Okay. Go ahead. Because I have another idea. I, I think oh, Lauren's it, it, probably on the right track, but there's another possibility here. Let's hear it. It's not really pain. It's just a discomfort. Okay. I, I wouldn't call it pain necessarily. So yeah. on, on the right side behind the rib cage, we have all kinds of things going on. We have the liver. We have the gallbladder. We have the pancreas. It's all over there on that right side. So pain on the right side behind the rib cage is very common. The left side, not so much. And Lauren's right. Most of the time, it's okay. probably your stomach is closer over there. So it could be upper GI kind of stuff. But there's something else that's right, right about the midline of your rib cage, maybe an inch or two below like the nipple line on the left side. That's where your spleen is. Your spleen is part of your immune system. So... Sometimes I've had people feel their spleen. Normally, we have no idea it's even there. But I've had some cases where people say, I'm feeling something right here and it doesn't feel good. And one of the things you can do to kind of test this, have you ever done the Wim Hof breathing? No, I've always wanted to, but I just never got around to it. The, it turns out that the um, spleen actually stores blood and some other things and then releases it when we need to. And our spleen can get kind of sluggish, uh, just like our gallbladder can. And then it kind of gets clogged. Uh, it turns out that the breathing, this particular breathing, the way we do it, forces the spleen to kind of work. And we want our organs to work. We don't want them sitting around not doing anything. That's when they start to have problems. So the breathing, and I'm going to have to go back. I forget the whole explanation for this, but I've read through it and it made total sense. But try the, the next time you have an episode when you're feeling that, try the Wim Hof breathing. I've had people say they get immediate relief. That's interesting. It, it could be as simple as a compression and just getting fresh blood in there. Because if you can compress with a with a heavy, deep breathing, then mm -hmm. your diaphragm is going to expand and maybe it puts a little pressure on the spleen. And then so. when you um, release, then it should rush blood to the to the organ. Well, this is on the right on the the very bottom rib, and if I then, hit the right spot, you know, press on it. it it gets my attention pretty quick. Yeah, Lauren's probably right then. That's probably more digestive than spleen if it's that low. Okay. Okay. All right. But we'll know uh, we'll know by, by the symptoms that you correct. respond to in the nutrition. We'll have a yeah. pretty good idea. Yeah, if okay. if we were to see... Then? 
Yeah, just to give you an example, if we were to see those upper digestive symptoms, then absolutely, we're talking about a digestive issue. If your digestion looks fairly solid, but your immune system is way out of whack, then that would be an indication this might be a spleen issue. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I'm never sick. I mean, I, that's a good never, sign. I don't, yeah. I don't get sick very often. Right. I, I think um, Lauren's on the right track. So with that, this di- one. That, that digestive issue, would that not take care of itself over the course of a little over a year? Or, no. You know what I'm saying? Almost never does. Okay. Here's why. There's actually no. a good okay. explanation for this. It's like a catch 22. So the mm-hmm. way we fix everything in the body is with nutrients, right? You've heard us say that for years now, right? Right. Oh, yeah. We need nutrients to fix everything in the body. That's how it works. Well, what if your digestion, if your digestion is compromised, how do you get the nutrients? Yeah. And there's specific nutrients to help you diet that you need to just to make, for instance, hydrochloric acid, right. which is what you need in your stomach region to break down mainly your proteins. And if you're even low in zinc, you can't produce hydrochloric acid. So we, this is a place where we have to use supplementation to jumpstart the process. We can introduce the best food in the world with all the nutrients, but if you're broken and you're not digesting it, we're screwed. So we have to come in in the beginning Mm -hmm. with supplements. That's why we designed these kits the way we did. Based on your NutriQ, you might get one of six or seven different digestive kits, but they're designed to go in and introduce the nutrients in massive quantities so we can break through that problem and then once your body starts digesting food properly and you're eating good food then you'll get the nutrients you need without the supplements gotcha and that would be our goal our goal is never to put you on a supplement and keep you on it the rest of your life there are times we have to, if you're, if you've, if you've lost a body part, we're probably going to have to supplement the rest of your life. If you have all your body parts, our goal is to get you to the point where you get your nutrition from food and we supplement as little as possible. All right. Uh, that NutriQ, how do I get that on the, on your website? Go to let's truck.com. Uh, oh, go ahead, Lauren. Okay. Yeah, letstruck.com, and then in the, the, there's a, an area in the top where it says work with us, and it's a little drop-down. It'll say NutriQ, discovery call, one-on-one. You click on NutriQ and request it there, and then right after you request that and you take it, then I would schedule the discovery call, and you and I can jump on a 10-minute call for free, and we'll just go over everything that, that we have found in the, the NutriQ and uh, make sure that you are on the right track. So you'll leave that discovery call with a protocol for like the next month to uh, get your digestive, your digestive system back on track. Sounds good. All right. Well, I look forward to working with you. Excellent. Uh, me too. I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, Kyle. And that goes Absolutely. for anybody, by the way, the discovery call and, and the NutriQ, that whole initial consult, we do those free. It, it's 
crazy. Everybody, every time I talk to other practitioners, they're, they're like, you're insane. Why would you ever do all that work free? Because it seems to work better for everybody this way. We get more people in that we can help. That's how we make money. So it, it just works. It, it gets people into the process. It, it's kind of our way of proving that we kind of know what we're doing. Go through this process. We will improve your health. We guarantee it. We do it every time. So it's our way of saying, you know, it, it's no different than the whole drug dealer model. Give them, give them a taste of it free. They'll see how good it is and they'll come back. So it's, you know, we do this to help other people, but we're also doing it to help ourselves. Uh, so go do it. You'll be amazed at what you learn. Lauren, I, I know I've said this a lot, but um, Greg Graham is the guy who started the, uh, the NTA and he owned... Um, Biotics Northwest here for Biotic. years. Yeah, and Gray and I became friends. You know, I, I always feel so bad about this. I apologize to Gray once. So when I first started the NTA program, you know all the videos you had to watch? Yeah, when you, When you did the program, were most of the videos done by Gray? Yes. Yeah. They have since updated that. They have. And I didn't know him. We weren't friends. I had never met him. I didn't know who he was. All I knew was I had to watch all these oh, videos. No. And I don't like watching videos anyway. I, I just don't. Give me the book. Let, let me just read it. And I can do it faster and better. So I'm already upset that I have to watch all these damn videos. But it's part of the program, mm -hmm. so I'm going to do it. Now something about the way Gray delivered stuff made me crazy. I just did not like watching him. I, I And I actually, yeah. the first couple of weeks, I actually wrote these horrible reviews. Like, you got to get rid of this guy. Who is this? I can't watch this. <laughs> and then I met Gray <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, it's him. Uh, and we became friends and I felt so, oh. I know. And I felt so bad about it. Gray is an amazing guy. And the program he created is unbelievable. And I still say this all the time. The NutriQ is an amazing tool. Oh, it absolutely is. It really is. And it's just based on your symptoms. What are you feeling? Okay. Well, these are the reasons that you're most likely feeling them and let's address them. Yeah. I had no idea all these years that all these things and, and some of them you wouldn't even think of as symptoms. They're just like, they just are. But I had no idea that yeah. all of those things will point us to something going wrong in our body. Mm -hmm. I know. It's true. It's pretty incredible what they've done with that. Yeah. Yeah, it really Great is. Great tool. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing how powerful it is and how much. And, and you're there now because you look at these things all the time. I love the fact that I can glance at somebody's NutriQ and go, yeah, I know exactly what's wrong with you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I actually get excited if I get, if I have um, a call scheduled for, you know, I don't know, for Monday or Tuesday and it's the weekend. Sometimes I just want to see yeah, I know. just the NutriQ. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just the symptom burning ground because then I know right away. Okay, you know, this is going to be a pretty, you know, typical one or, yep. oh, this one's going to take a little more diving into. So, yeah, 
It's yeah. exciting. I it love, is. I love looking at that stuff. Yeah. I, I miss doing them. So I, at some point I may jump in and grab a couple from you, but probably not anytime soon because <laughs> there's a lot going on right now. Let's, uh, let's go grab another call. Let's go to Minnesota. Randy, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin, how's it going? Good. Hey, I just wanted mind? to throw a couple of caveats into your gardening sure. curiosities that you were talking about earlier. Um, you know, the planting dates they throw out are, you got to remember, you're in a unique situation. You're down there in zone eight, and you've got two full growing seasons, and I've had to learn how to adapt to that myself. I'm in Virginia, and so I've got two full growing seasons, too. But most of the country is up north. You know, and dealing with zone five and six, and in many cases, four. And so a lot of those planting times are for those people because they have just a very short window of that's a good point growing that yeah. they got to get their stuff in as early as they can and get, you know, it, it's tough. There are parts of the country where you can't bring a tomato to ripeness. Oh, no, you I, just I don't have enough. I believe it. Yeah, I, I believe and it. And so, and yeah, and then there's, you know, and every plant is different. There's so many, you got to learn each one individually. You know, a lot of your, um, a lot of your nightshades, your peppers, your tomatoes, you know, won't, you know, a tomato specifically, you know, yeah, it has a, you know, a 95 day, a hundred day, 110 day, depending on the variety, you know, to maturity. And that is, you know, from the time that seed germinates until the time that it's fruiting is X amount of time. And, if you get it out too early and it's stunted by growth or cold, it doesn't change its timeline. No. It just means that it's weaker it, right. by the time it gets ramped up. Right. But then on the flip side of things, a tomato, you know, when it gets above, I think, 88 degrees will not produce the lycopene needed to ripen it. <laughs> so it, yeah, you're battling two ends of, <laughs> of the same sword. And, There's a lot going on you know, here. And pumpkins. There are, you know, all your cucurbits, your pumpkins, your cucumbers, squash, you know, they they won't germinate until the soil temperatures are pretty darn high. Correct. But then by the same token, won't a, a pumpkin plant will not set a female flower if the temperatures are above 90 degrees. <laughs> I know. It's amazing to me that we're you know, able so to grow anything sometimes, you know, and. Right, right. And. And then, you know, all of your direct-to-sow plants, you know, some some stuff will not germinate if the, temperature, if the soil temperatures aren't below 45 degrees. Some stuff won't germinate if the soil temperatures aren't above 65 degrees. You know, you have to deal with those. You know, so but it really is. Here's another thing that I think, and again, it's just based on my personal experience where I am, and we do have kind of a unique growing climate here, but there's also this push that on certain plants, their their strong recommendation is always sow it directly into the ground when you can. And there are certain plants you absolutely have to do that with. If you mess with the roots at all, the plant just dies. But it seems yeah, to me they will not transplant. Right. It seems to me they promote direct seeding pretty heavily. And I have found that even like peas, for example, they almost always tell you just direct plant seeds, direct sow peas. Yeah. They'll yep. grow. Yep. And they're right. You put a pea seed in the ground, it'll grow a plant. But I have found that if I start my peas inside under the lights, 
they are almost twice as productive. But nobody ever seems to recognize. I've got like 150 pea plants right now, just planted them, and I am pushing the limit. My guess is I'm probably not going to get any peas out of it. <laughs> I, I, I might get lucky. Here's the thing about peas, though. If I take these 150 plants, I'm going to let them grow under the lights as long as possible till I till they're almost I, I may even let them start flowering under the lights. Then I'm going to move them outside yeah. and hope I get enough, you know, a week or two of good enough weather that they'll actually produce peas. But if they don't, pea yeah, plants yeah. are so good for your soil anyway, who cares? I mean, rather than let right, exactly. Yeah, rather than let plant. ground sit there bare right now, seeds cost me nothing. I recover all my own seeds, so why not throw a bunch of seeds right. in the ground? I might get lucky. We might have yeah, a exactly. long fall, and exactly. I might get a nice, nice pea crop at the end of the season here. Yeah, yeah, you cer- you certainly should be able to, and that's you know, and that's that that double ended season. You get a spring and a fall, and you know, in my case, I shut down in the summertime. I don't do anything. July, August. You know, I, I, the growing season, growing seasons in the fall more than it is in the spring. Yeah, this year what I really did. Not only do we with a long season like this, not only do we have the ability to do two completely separate crops. What I did a lot more of this year was succession planting. Plant thirty pea yes. plants today instead of one hundred and fifty. Plant thirty. Five days from now, plant 30 more. Five days after that, plant 30 more. 15 days after that, plant 30 more. And then I have peas coming all summer long into the fall. Yeah, it's a good strategy with beans as well. Beans do excellent like that. I have a crop of beans right now that I, I know I was pushing it, but they're growing really well and they're starting to flower. So I think I'm going to get a good crop of beans yeah, out of yeah. those. Um, cabbage, I yeah. just yeah, and it's too, just started some cabbage in the Yeah, in cabbage, the grow you're house. better off planting. Now, I, I even yeah, found... Plant, get, it, get it started now, get it in the right. ground pretty soon, and then you'll be happy with it through the winter. Yeah, and um, here's something else I just learned. So I'm excited this year that because we have such a mild winter, I am, as I pull plants out of the ground right now, I'm harvesting onions, um, some of my bean plants are dying, so now I just pull the plant out of the ground. Something goes right back in that spot. I put a seed in the ground. Maybe it'll grow, maybe it won't, but something's going to go back in the ground. Then when the season's completely done, I'll clear things out and I'll plant my cover crops. But I am going to, um, right now, I put a ton of root vegetables in. So as a plant comes out, a root vegetable goes in. A carrot, a beet, a turnip, a rutabaga. Um, Because from what I understand, we'll see. If I start them now, they'll probably kind of almost mature. The carrots will probably be behind. The beets will almost mature by the time winter hits. And I've been told you can just leave them in the ground all winter. They'll 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 leave stop growing. Ground. Just go out and pick one yep. when you want one in the middle of January. Just go pull a fresh beet out yep. of the ground. So I'm really yep. excited cover, about cover, that. Cover them up. They'll go quas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just cover them up. They will slow down. They'll almost go dormant. And you can go out. They'll sweeten up, and you can harvest them. Yeah, yeah. And I, I you know, I shoot, just I'll, I'll fill my beds full of tillage radishes and purple top turnips and anything for soil structure. I don't care right. if I 
consume any of them or all of them. I just, but I, I want them there for what they do to the soil. I just did a ton, six different varieties of radishes and just put in a ton of purple top globe turnips. And I'll just leave them there all winter. Yep. And if I eat them, I eat them. Leave them there all winter. And yeah. if not, they're good for the soil. Um, here's the other thing I learned that I'm really excited about. And that's why I just planted another big crop of cabbage. Um, I haven't finished processing all the cabbage from the spring garden. That's what I've been doing. I've been making kimchi, sauerkraut. I just did a ton of that <laughs> over the weekend. And then turned around and planted another big crop because I read that in, in my zone, when the cabbage plant matures, all I do is pull the whole plant out of the ground, roots and all. Don't take off any of the big leaves. Pull the whole thing out of the ground. Take the hole, dig it a little deeper, flip the cabbage upside down, stick the head back underground, and mound the dirt up with the roots sticking out. And they said, your cabbage will last all winter. Wow. Really? I, that's what it said. Have you tried it? No, I haven't tried it yet. I, huh. I, I well, just you're, started you're growing have cabbage. You're going to try that and let me know because... <laughs> yeah. That, that sounds bizarre to me. What keeps it from just rotting? I know. Well, I guess... Yeah. I, I, I know. I don't get it. But, you know, when you look I at the that, conditions... I wonder if that holds true. Go ahead. But, I mean, you're in a warm, wet climate. I wonder if that's only true in a northern climate. That could be. That could be. It does. It's wet yeah, all winter boy, here. That's you, interesting. You, yeah. Now, here's the thing. Yeah, it really if, seems to me in your climate that it'll just rot. If that's the case, I could still probably get away with this. I wouldn't re-stick the cabbage in the ground where I was growing it, but I have some sheltered areas that kind of are out of the rain that I'd be able to put quite a few cabbages in there if I wanted, if that actually works. So I'm going to give it a shot. Oh, absolutely. In the absolutely. beginning, I'm just going to try it right where they grew. I'm just going to flip them upside down, put them right back in yep, the ground, I'd, I'd, uh, see what happens. Yeah, I'd be really curious about that. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. That's interesting. Hey, have you, um, have you ever tried fermenting garlic and honey? Yes. I did. It's pretty incredible. I know. It's pretty incredible. It really is. I don't, I do not understand why it works the way it works, but (laughs) yeah, I don't either. Kudos to it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How do you do that guys? You just, you separate out some garlic cloves, um, Mm -hmm. you know, fill a small mason jar, half full of garlic cloves, depending on how much you want to produce. Um, Mm -hmm. You can crush them. You can poke holes in them. You just want to be able to release the allicin that is in the garlic and then smother the whole thing in honey. That's it. And completely submerge the garlic in the honey. That's it. It's that that simple. Um, You can add other things to it. You can can add chives, onions, red pepper flakes, anything else you want to add to it that might add some flavor. But the garlic and the honey is there together. And for whatever reason, just almost overnight, that honey will go from really thick to really runny, almost syrupy runny. Pulls all and the water out of the in garlic. Time, yeah. 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 And then in, in time over months that the honey will begin to darken and darken and darken. And, you know, after several months, it will become really deep chocolate brown and the garlic becomes mild and 
in time, you know, after like a year, the garlic will really mellow out, become texturally almost like a roasted garlic. Right. The honey will taste like garlic. And it's just, it's just a crazy phenomenon, but <laughs> you know, from uh, an immune, from an, an immune therapy booster, a spoonful of that Allison soaked honey is amazing. Oh, you just gave me an wow. idea. You just gave me an idea. So, um, what do you do with that? Stir it into all kinds of food. You get a little bit of sweet it, oh, it, from the honey. You am, get that. Amazing for salad dressing. Yeah, yeah. you get that richness oh. from the garlic. Like make slaw dressing with it or salad dressings or marinades. Yeah, yeah. Any, any Thai dish. Yeah. yeah, there's all kinds of things you can do with it. Yeah, now here's oh, what wow. I'm thinking um, I'm going beauty, to Here's what I'm thinking I'm going though, to do with it. Um, well, go ahead with your point. Well, the garlic, it's, it's a good way to long-term store garlic mm-hmm. because it'll it'll sit on your shelf indefinitely. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So it really, it well, just started it. as a way to preserve garlic, but then you found all these other, you know, kind of weird benefits from it, everything that happens in there. Um, oh, shoot. I let you go with your point. Now I forgot what mine was going to be. Um what you're going to do with it. Oh, that's it. Thank you. So this past weekend, like I said, I had to get out in the garden and start preserving something. You know, tomatoes are about to hit, so canning is going to happen, and that's pretty labor intensive. So I thought, I got to deal with all this cabbage. I got to deal with all the, you know, I've got some peppers hitting already. So I decided to do a ton of fermenting over the weekend. And I did something a little different. When the cabbage first started to ripen, and I would cut one head at a time. We'd eat some fresh. And I just started piling the rest of it. Um, Sarah bought me a big five-gallon stone crock. I love that thing. I need to get me a couple more. Um, I just started the traditional European way. You pile a bunch of cabbage and salt in that crock. When you get new cabbage, you put it on the top yep. with some salt, reach into the bottom, pull out the old cabbage. So all of my cabbage this year was just fermented with nothing but salt. All the cabbage went into one big crock, just got fermented with salt. Then this weekend, when I went in to start making stuff, I would make everything using that cabbage base. It was already fermented. So I could make kimchi and curdito and all these other fermented cabbage dishes. But it was so much easier because all I had to do was add the other things. Yeah, that one step was already done. Um, Lauren. Have you heard of, this is pretty big in the natural health world. Have you heard of fire cider? Yes, I have. If it's what I think it is, it's basically like an apple cider vinegar with like all these crazy, yeah, yeah. Crazy, spicy, hot garlic, and you put some chili flakes in there and turmeric and ginger and, um, it's all these kind of really hot, spicy, powerful kind of things. And the idea is that it's a huge immune boost. Like people will say, you know, during mm-hmm. cold and flu season, you know, you do a shot or two of, of fire cider and you'll never get sick. I mean, that's kind of the claim. So I took that yeah. idea of fire cider and I made it into a beet slaw. Mm. 
Yum. So I had a ton of beets. So I did about three quarter beet and about a quarter cabbage. And then I added all of those, like the garlic and the ginger and some a little bit of apple cider vinegar and uh, made a beet slaw out of it. So I call it fire cider slaw. Wow. But I could see using, <laughs> I could see using that honeyed garlic to put in there and it would mellow it out a little bit and sweeten it up. I bet that would be really good. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It really, it really would. It yeah. would become a sweet slaw. Yeah. That, Just crazy powerful. Yeah, yeah, it would yeah. be hot would be, and sweet and I'll bet that would be really good. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably not going to eat a huge amount of it at one time, but wow, let's talk about some powerful flavors. Yeah, yeah, and oh, this stuff is good because it got, um, I have some awesome habaneros coming out of the garden right now. I said I wasn't able to get any heat out of my peppers this year. They're finally starting to get hot. I just think they needed more time, but my habaneros, it's actually a version of habanero that's only supposed to be about as half as hot as a traditional habanero, which is still screaming hot. Still stupid hot. Yeah. yeah. The, the problem I have with habaneros, it is for the flavor, it's my favorite pepper. I love the taste of habaneros. They have that, I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost, it tastes like you scorched something. That's the best way I can describe it. <laughs> it, it even smells hot. Like, I don't even know how, how you smell something spice, but that I can smell an habanero. I love the smell and the taste. The problem is they're so stinking hot, you can't get enough of the flavor into the food without blowing the top of your head off. And I, I can eat some pretty hot yeah. stuff, but I can't get enough yeah. of the habanero flavor and then I have too much heat. So this variety is supposed to be about mm -hmm. half as hot and it's hot. But it's, it's almost perfect. It's right there on the edge. When I eat something, I'm sweating. My mouth hurts, but I love it. it it's, it's right there. And I get this, I get a really nice, strong habanero flavor. So I made a, this is something I don't know that I've seen anywhere else. I thought about this after I made it. I made a fresh salsa from the garden, but I used habaneros. When you see habaneros, it's almost always like a long cooked sauce. You know, I don't know that I've ever seen fresh salsa with habaneros. Uh, not many anyway. I'm sure there's know. something out there, yeah. but it's not very common. Yeah. I made it. It's, I've seen some chunky hot sauces. Yeah. Yeah. But this is a true fresh salsa. Nothing was cooked. Tomatoes are raw, the onions are raw, right. the garlic's raw, the peppers are raw, but I put about half of this, you know, slightly milder habanero and about half jalapeno and then fermented the salsa. It is, oh, it's one what of my is, favorites. Okay. So when, when you ferment that, Kevin, does the, does the capsaicin change in any way? It mellows out just a little bit. Not a lot, but it mellows out a little bit. You know what it does? If you try to eat like a raw habanero, it, whatever yeah, part I, of I would you, never try, but yeah, I can imagine. Well, I, I've tried it. <laughs> but uh, take any hot pepper. Like if, <laughs> like if you can barely handle a jalapeno, yeah. eat one raw. And here's what yeah, you'll experience. Me. Everywhere it touches your mouth burns like mad, right? 
just it just touches your tongue yeah, yeah. And, and that spot burns when you either you can either put a little bit of vinegar on them and pit like they're pickled or you can ferment them and what happens is instead of feeling these little intense spots of heat the heat kind of mellows out and spreads all over your mouth and it's not as painful that way that's the best way i can explain it okay okay mm. yeah i mean i've tried fermenting jalapenos and just did not like them. I don't like them either. I, didn't, uh, I tried it. I was so excited yeah, they, about being I able was, to ferment jalapenos. They just uh, don't uh, taste right. Nope. I was so disappointed. I'm like, yeah. But, well, I can, that's a, but I can add jalapenos to all of my ferments and it makes them better. Okay. Hmm. Like my dill pickles. Yeah, I I put jalapenos oh, in yeah. my dill pickles every time. I love spicy dill pickles, and for some reason, I'll eat the jalapeno slices that are in the pickles, and they're good. But if I try to ferment jalapenos on their own, I don't like them. Yeah, isn't that interesting? You know, we make we're fermenting our pickles. You know, and we kind of switched gears a little bit. We're not fermenting the pickles; we are making brine because we. We much prefer to drink the brine than eat. <laughs> I mean, the pickles are great, but the more yeah. stuff you put in the jar, the better the brine becomes. I know, right? Garlic mm-hmm. and chili flakes and jalapenos. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather pour myself a small glass of <laughs> cold brine and just sip on it. It's delicious. Oh, it's amazing <laughs> too. I mean, talk about electrolytes. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and my gosh, you know, between <laughs> if you're if you're eating your fermented foods and making all your own medicinal stuff, and how can you not be healthy? Exactly. Yeah. I, it, it, it really, really is incredibly powerful. And I know there are probably people that get tired of me talking about gardening, but get used to it. I think it's one of the healthiest things people it, could take up as a hobby. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. It's the hardest thing to do as a truck driver. Yeah, I get but that. I, I do. You know, I manage. I get. I get home and I spend two days in the garden, and then I get back on the road for a week, and then I go home and rinse and repeat. And you know, the garden gets away from me, but I don't care. You know, because I, I can still go you, dig you, through the weeds and find something to eat. Exactly. And you can save it. And, you know, it's also why I've been experimenting with these grow systems and containers and grow boxes uh, to kind of help drivers. Because there is a way that if you can get home once a week, you could garden. Yes. And, you know, and you can ferment in your truck, you can brew in your truck, you can... I've got bottles of keeper and bottles of pick, pickles and bottles of mead, and I've got an entire <laughs> rolling distillery in my truck. And I, the, I really wonder if I ever got pulled I over know. what the officer would I say. Know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, hopefully they'd be able to determine the difference between somebody who has a case of Budweiser, you know, and they're getting hammered every night in their truck. Well, and, yeah. The, um, fun, the, the funny thing is, every jar, 
every jar that I would open and have him smell it, he would insist that it was bad and spoiled and would never question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you think about it, you know, to the, to the untrained nose, oh, yeah. what is the smell of fermented anything? How's that going to be perceived? You know, technically, it is controlled <laughs> spoilage. It is. Right. It is, absolutely. Right. Yeah, it, it's controlled you spoilage. You know, I get a kick out of it. I have got a bottle of Keeper in my truck that has been, I, I drink down a half a cup, I add a half a cup of fresh milk. I drink down a half a cup day after day after day after day. And I've been doing this for almost nine months. And it has never been refrigerated. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Wow! So there's a brand <laughs> of um, dairy on the market, Nancy's, and they make Man, a lot okay. of probiotic dairy now. So yogurt has always kind of been probiotic, but now they make like um, probiotic fermented buttermilk, sour cream. Um, just all cottage cheese, just all kinds of dairy products, but truly fermented and then not pasteurized. They're cultured dairy. What their okay. sour cream Great. is the best sour cream I've ever had in my life. The stuff is incredible. And we were buying it through Azure and we would stock up and get ahead. But you, you, you kind of watch your dates because you that's that should be a... You know, there should be an expiration on that at some point. You can't store it forever. But the other day, we had gotten right. lazy about ordering from Azure because we don't need any produce this time of year. And that's mostly what I get. So we had kind of stopped ordering from Azure. And I realized, oh, hey, we're almost out of sour cream. There's only one left. And this is just a couple of days ago. Was it yesterday? It's, it's fairly recent. So I go into the refrigerator in the pantry and I grab it. The expiration date was in May. And I'm like, oh, this is a little past its date. Because it's fermented, cultured, I opened it up. It's awesome. It's perfect. Right. There's nothing wrong with and it. Probably it was refrigerated. So. Yeah, it's been refrigerated. But it, it, we're talking, you know, several months past its expiration date. And it's still perfect. That's interesting. Hey. Maybe you guys have some insight on this. You know, I live in a stupid state where raw dairy is taboo, forbidden, and just flat out illegal. Yeah. <laughs> if I if I buy if I can pick up raw dairy from another state and use that in yogurt, in keeper, in whatever other dairy based culture, if you're using if you're using pasteurized dairy or even ultra pasteurized dairy that you then add that raw culture to, could you not technically reculture an entire gallon of pasteurized dairy with raw dairy cultures? I'm not sure if I understand the question. So if you took a, if you took a gallon of ultra pasteurized milk, okay. And added a cup of raw dairy to it and gave it a couple of days, would it not culture out as a gallon of raw dairy? No, it won't. We, we, well, I shouldn't say that. We don't know what's going to happen. Here's the thing when we culture dairy, we're, we are culturing a very, very specific strain of bacteria. 
whether it's El Ruderai or any commercial yogurt, they use a very specific strain of bacteria. And that's the one we want to multiply. The problem with raw dairy is there is probably some bacteria in there somewhere. It, It may not be enough that it would hurt us, but it could be there. Maybe it isn't, but maybe it is. And what we have to be careful of is we don't culture the bad bacteria. We don't know what's going to win out. Yeah, yeah. If there's 32 different strains of bacteria in raw milk, we don't know which one might win out. But it might be the one we don't want to. Yeah, because you you may culture a staphylococcus of some sort and not be happy about it. Yeah, so I I know there are people out there that say, we've been making yogurt from raw milk our whole life, and I believe them. It's kind of like the canning thing. There's a lot of things that go on in canning that we've always been told, no, you can't do that, and then you find out somebody's been doing it for three generations. Maybe people do make yogurt out of raw dairy. When I read it, it seemed to me like, why don't I just take the 20 minutes and just lightly pasteurize this instead? I just think, I mean, I think back, you know, go go back 300 years before refrigeration was even a thing. Go back 3,000 years. And how did they keep from dying? Well, you know what? I really, I, I really I, think that those cultures I, in the dairy are probably strong enough to support themselves. They, they here's the thing. And our, it, and our, think about just this example. What, what does everybody tell you if you're going to vacation in Mexico? Oh, yeah, don't drink the water. Why not? Um, The people who live there drink it every day. Why can't I? They have gut bacteria that allows them to drink that, and it doesn't bother them. Exactly. That's kind of where I was going with that was, yeah, you know, know, if you're born and raised with it, yeah, you're probably in a position to do battle with anything that might be bad. Yeah, and I, you know, when we... For anybody that's Americanized, when we hear about hunter gatherers and they go back and we try to, you know, we try to study the Maasai today or the Hadzas or, and we find out that their gut bacteria is wildly different from ours. Not only their gut bacteria, all of their bacteria, the bacteria in their mouth is different. They don't get yeah, cavities. Yeah. The bacteria in their skin is different. Right. They don't bathe, but you know what? They don't have body odor either. They have different bacteria. Right. We know all that. But so I believe that why do they have such great gut bacteria? There's this one theory that it's because they ate so much fiber. I don't believe that. And I have a feeling if we started loading people up today with fiber, the results would probably not be good. So I don't think and I do know they did eat a lot of fiber because their root vegetables were really fibrous. But there are probably times a year when hunting was successful. They weren't eating any fiber. Why did they have better gut bacteria? Because everything they ate probably had bacteria. They didn't sanitize (laughs) everything. Yes. Their meat was sitting out in the sun sometimes. And all of their food wasn't refrigerated. They did the best they could to preserve it. But I have a feeling that almost everything they ate was loaded with all kinds of bacteria. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and just, we just hyper sanitize everything, and then we wonder why our gut bacteria is messed up. We put chlorine in our water. Guess what chlorine does? Kills bacteria. Yep, yep. 
we hyper sanitize our food. You know, go to go to every other country. Lauren, you've probably experienced this several times. What are the outdoor markets like? Oh, everything is un- is not refrigerated. I mean, we look at it. The and go, meat market. Uh, oh my! Not only is it not refrigerated, if you watch, it's brought in unwrapped, big, huge legs of lamb, <laughs> big chunks of rib cages. <laughs> it's it's piled in the back of an old pickup truck, not wrapped in anything, and then they take it out of the truck and they pile it on a table at the farmers market, and people buy it all day long. Well. By six o'clock at night, do you think there might be a little more bacteria on that food? <laughs> Seriously. But that's how, that's how we've bought and sold food forever until the United States created supermarkets and then decided to start sanitizing and wrapping everything. And guess what? The results haven't been good. We're less healthy. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and I wonder, you know, I grew up on a dairy farm. I'm 54 years old and I'm perfectly healthy by all intent and purposes as near as I can tell. And, you know, and, you know, we grew up on a dairy farm drinking raw milk right out of the milk tank and throwing cow pies at each other, exactly. and, <laughs> yeah. you know, and playing in the mud and the dirt and the irrigation ditches. And there was, you know, I know that mom would make us wash up when we came in for dinner, but you know that that was probably ill-fated and and why did it even matter if you washed then you hadn't been washing all day and you're picking up stuff and sticking it in your mouth and you know eating strawberries and right all day long i yeah all day long yeah so you know and i really do think you know like lauren said about her kids you know that i think the way you're raised has a big a big thing to do with how you are as an adult, you know, both in mindset and in health. There's a clear pattern here. The older you are in the United States, the probably the healthier you are. And I mean, long-term, I don't mean 90 year olds are healthy, but most of us today aren't going to make it to 90 anymore. You know, we hear about that old farmer who drank whiskey and smoked for 60 years and still made it to 100. We know drinking whiskey and smoking (laughs) was not good for him. We know that. But yet he was healthy enough. They still live to be 100. Exactly. And I I just had this. Yeah, what would he live to without the whiskey and cigarettes? I just had this example the other day. A a friend of mine here in town, he's, uh, he's a master carpenter so he's done a lot of work for us and we've become friends um he grew up in the netherlands and you know he told me about the way he grew up and it was you know eating just real whole food and and even better than growing up here in the united states 50 years ago most of the world is getting all of its bad habits from us I mean, we tend to start most of the bad habits. Yeah, and yeah. I, I look at him and I think he's healthier than most Americans because he grew up in another country. Yeah. 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 I believe that. And in the Netherlands, they eat a lot of fish. All right. Yeah. We were talking about yeah. fish, mackerel. He, he absolutely loves the mackerel we have in the store. That's what he grew up eating, little tiny mackerel. All right, Randy, thanks yeah, for the, cool. thanks so, for the hey, call. Great stuff. Yep. 
You guys have a good one. All right. Talk to you soon. You too. Calls are coming in. Let's talk to them. Everybody's interested in uh, gardening and fermenting today. It's, uh, I like this. Let's. Uh, I have. I, I, I don't know if I should click on this line or not. In all caps, it says SCAMMER. Uh, that sounds a little scary. I know, it sounds a little scary. Who are we talking to here? Uh-oh, that doesn't sound good. Hmm. No. Let me put that line back in the queue. Not sure what's going on with that, Lisa. See what you can figure out on that. Please. Let's go to Marilyn. Sarah, welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going? I'm not sure what you guys are talking about 100% because we just, we read the shout out of our shipper and I just clicked the show in and I heard somebody mention the um, fermented garlic. I just Mm. saw that. um, I think back around last Thanksgiving and I, so I put some, half garlic closely because you, you need to cut a clove at least in half for the different parts to um, work together and to activate the allicin. And um, so I filled the jar with that and ginger slices. I like snacking on that stuff. Um, but other than that, I was doing another experiment with fermenting. Um, not, I hadn't quite tried the high meat yet because somebody said, oh, don't do that in the truck. It really stinks bad. And I didn't want Vic finding that and getting all upset with that. No. So I took a jar of brine. Whenever I'm almost done with the ferment, I take another one out from my uh, drawer underneath and I, I pour what's left of the brine in the next one. So I had like this half jar of mixed brine from a whole bunch of different things. And I cut up um, 100% grass-fed syrup, threw it in this brine, and I stirred around, and I left it on the counter for the weekend, and I tasted some of the next couple of days. It's like, oh, it tastes kind of like what ceviche tastes like. Um, and I think this is like a month later, and I take a couple pieces out every now and then and chew on it. And wait, wait a it's minute. It's not high meat. Wait a minute. Let me, let me get this right. It's not gone bad or anything. Let me get this right. You took huh. raw sirloin, right? Yeah. And you just put I it. I cut it up in little, yeah. little bit. Yeah. And then you're just putting it in one of your old fermenting brines and then just leaving it at room temperature? Uh, sometimes I put it in the fridge. Like if, if we're going to have the truck off and it's going to be super hot, I oh, throw yeah. it in the fridge. Yeah. But, but I leave it out too. I leave it out. I put it in. I leave it out. And, but yeah, and then just snack on a couple pieces at a time. The dogs love it too. And a month later, you're still eating it. Uh huh. That's kind yeah, of I, awesome. I've just been tasting little bits, just been tasting little bits at a time because I want enough of it left to see how it tastes down the road. Yeah. Um, so I still have most of the jar, it, but it, it, it's just an experiment because nobody talks like. So far, all of the recipes that I've seen for fermented meat, after they ferment them for a few days, they cook them. I know. I I said earlier. I said earlier. I wanted to do more exploring on fermented meat, and I can't find much. And like I, like you say, a lot of times they all talk about cooking it afterwards. Well, what's the point? Yeah, 
The only reason I could see then is the right. fermentation might tenderize it some, kind of like aging, and then cook right. it to kill the bacteria. But so did you just try this on your own or did you find this somewhere? No, I just tried it. And I didn't want to have pinky pie meat working in the prison. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to have a whole truck sink in. Um, so yeah, I just, well, what happens if I cut it up and stick it in brine? Interesting. So I'm experimenting. Huh. And I think I'm at about a month in. I can go a little exactly because I know what hotel we were in when I cut it up. Yeah. I just look at the calendar. I write where we are on the calendar every everywhere. Um, put a date on it, but I want to see how how it progresses. Pretty interesting. But it was just mixed fermented brines from different brines. And yeah. Like I said, when I first cut it up, the, the second, third day, it tasted just like ceviche. Wow. I'd love ceviche. Like if you were to make ceviche out of beef. Yeah, I'd love ceviche. Well, which would but be basically... Vegetable brine. Yeah, which would be tartare, beef tartare, which is a raw beef dish, but I've never let it sit around for a month. But maybe make tartare <laughs> and then just drop the whole tartare into some brine. That might be really good. Hmm. So, just experimenting. Yeah, I love it. Well, I've, like I said, I've left it out at room temperature a few days. I put it back in, put it, put it out, yeah, put it in. You know, that's kind of the way I treat most of my ferments. There are times when, you know, I'll take a ferment mm-hmm. out and I'll be eating out of it and I'll just leave it on the jars or on the counter. It's not like I care if it sits out for a couple of days, no big deal. And then maybe later on I'll put it back in. Um, I was just, you know, fermenting over the weekend. So I was kind of taking stock and I still have probably six full quarts of spicy dill pickles from last year's garden and they're still good. Nice. They stayed yeah, crisp. I, and, I, I yeah. can't get enough of it. You know, like I don't have enough room in the truck to do as much as I want, but oh, every time I take a jar out of the out of the cupboard, I, I, I refill it with something else when I put it back down. You, I like the long fermentation. Yeah, you do a hell of a job in the truck. Really, you do an amazing job of, of all the food prep and fermenting and, and all that stuff you do. It's pretty incredible. We should do a once-a-month weekend fermenting show. I think so. I think that's a good idea. I th- a Talk lot of people have been asking about it. in season. Yeah. Yeah. One of the favorite things that I fermented this time, um, pepper paste. This is a, and I'm growing so many different peppers. I'll probably make several of these. Uh, but I did one out of those habaneros that I said, and they're, even though they're half hot, they're still really, really hot. Um, so basically all you do, take the peppers themselves, you throw in a little garlic onion, you throw in some other things, but you basically just throw it all into a blender, no water, no liquid, and blend the peppers into a paste. And then you add the salt Mm -hmm. to their just slightly little saltier than you would like them and leave it on the counter. The beauty of this, I took a little bit of that paste, a little tiny bit. We had some queso from a restaurant and I stirred Mm -hmm. a little bit of that habanero paste into the queso and it took the habanero flavor right over the top. 
and it lasts forever. It's just a really easy way to use hot peppers in cooking. Have you made fermented ketchup? I have not, but I just saw a really interesting recipe for ketchup, and I want to try it, so I don't know why I couldn't just ferment that ketchup. Here's the recipe. Um, tomatoes, and I have these awesome plum paste tomatoes that'll make excellent ketchup. Um, dates for the sweetness and kind of the umami that you get in ketchup, and sun-dried tomatoes. And I may even attempt to do my own sun-dried tomatoes. Yeah, I saw it online. It was it was spreading around. And I looked at that and I thought, man, that sounds like a really good way to make ketchup. So I think I'm going to try that and then maybe I'll ferment it. Because now I haven't tried fermented ketchup yet, but it sounds really good. I think yeah. that um, Pearl Mother's book called um, Rainmaker, he has... That uh, the PDF for that book has a bunch of recipes for fermenting things, and I think that the fermented ketchup recipe was in that PDF, but I'm not 100. I, I might go look at that. The other thing, and I've talked about this because I did it last year. I need to do some more now because I'm out. Um, fermented ginger paste. Uh, yeah, the fermented salsa uh, too, but fermented ginger paste. Excellent way to preserve ginger. I love ginger. But it only works in certain dishes, and we don't eat those dishes all that often. Mm -hmm. And every time I go to have ginger, I never have any fresh. And I know you can freeze it, but it's not quite the same. And so I just started doing the fermented ginger paste. And again, what a great way to cook with ginger. Stick it in the refrigerator. It lasts forever. How do you make that one? Same thing. I just take fresh ginger. I don't even peel it. I leave skin everything on. I just throw it in the blender and start to blend it. And if it needs a little bit of liquid, I'll take some of my old brine, any brine I have around, Mm -hmm. and pour. You just want to liquefy it just enough to get it to blend. And then put in the salt and then blend it to a paste. Put it in your jars. Leave your jars out for a couple weeks. Stick it in the refrigerator. It lasts forever. And it's so easy to cook with ginger like that. And here's the other thing. I've said because of that motorcycle accident, I have an issue with nausea that I'll probably never get rid of. And, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes if it's bad, cannabis is what fixes it right away. The medical community has almost nothing for nausea. And everything they have has horrible side effects. So cannabis, if it's really bad... But if I really don't want to, you know, indulge in some cannabis, a little bit of this fermented ginger is excellent for nausea. Better than any drug they have on the market, Mm -hmm. really. Um, But it maintains that fresh ginger flavor forever. It's it's so good to cook with that. So it's kind of the same thing. This pepper paste is, is kind of the same idea. You know, I once in a while, I do like a habanero or a ghost pepper or a scotch bonnet. I like something really hot, but I don't keep them around. So if I want them, I'm going to have to go to the store and find them. Just make a paste out of them. It lasts forever. And it's actually easier to cook with. That's a good idea. Yes, we all right. 
Sarah. Good stuff. We're going to try this one call again. See if somebody's there this time. I'm just hearing that clicking again. Yeah. That sounds huh. like, it just sounds wrong. You know, oh, hey, there you are. Can you hear me now? I can. Yes, Vo- how you doing? It's Voitech. How you doing, sir? How you doing, sir? Hi, yes. I, we're looking here in our file, and I, I see that your car warranty is up for renewal. Um, or, wait, let me look in this other file. I see that you're maybe in the market for a timeshare. Or, if we've already sold you a timeshare, we can help you get out of a timeshare. What are you in the market for? I thought, I thought for sure you were going to have something to do with my penis size. <laughs> Definitely not. Oh, <laughs> uh, what else? Have not, I... not in that market yet. Uh, well, I will tell you the other day, since the government's going to start throwing out money again for green technologies, I'm probably going to take advantage <laughs> of it and put solar on my house. So I went through the little process. Click here. We'll tell you, you know, what your tax credit is for solar. I filled that out. I am not exaggerating. I bet I've had 200 phone calls since then. Oh, wow. I just ignore them all. Obviously, yeah, I don't answer my phone really when it's people. It. Yeah, I don't answer my phone when it's people I know. I'm certainly not answering these calls. But I, I bet I've had 200, and I'm not exaggerating. Wow. Well, you're depriving somebody of their income by not <laughs> answering the phone and not, you know, giving. <laughs> well, the crazy thing is, they keep dialing. Uh, my God, you think they'd give up after a while? Yeah, probably. And the calls come from all over the country, it's, it's too. too. They, they must, when you fill out this form, there must be 100 people that have access to those numbers because the calls come from all over the country. See, that was your mistake. You filled out a form online instead of reaching they, out to a company that does this. Exactly. They sucked me right in. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, uh, it's apparent that you definitely need a dedicated gardening show, uh, you know, at least once a month. You know, I'm, I'm thinking gardening, yeah. fermenting, canning. Yeah, those, those topics all around yeah. growing and preserving food seem to be really popular. And when I post something, like the other day I was doing all this fermenting and all I did was snap pictures as I was doing it and then just kind of post the pictures. I didn't have time to explain everything. The minute I put it up, I get messages, recipes, recipes. How do I do this? How do I do that? I'm like, hold on. <laughs> relax i'll explain it <laughs> so yeah there seems to be a you lot to, of interest you need, to, you, you need to hire a kid out of your neighborhood somewhere your town to follow you around with your phone and just record what you're doing and you just talk to the camera and you know give the kid some you know tomatoes or whatever you've got for payment that's and a good this, idea. Uh, your video's done. That's a good idea. I'll teach, teach him how to do all this and stuff. And the kid will learn some. Yeah. Right, exactly. We'll learn some valuable lesson, you know, a skill. Yeah, you're, you're on to something here. I also need them because I've no, admitted. Don't worry about royalties. Don't send me a royalty check for this one. It's okay. Oh, God. I it. give out free advice like this all the time. I appreciate yeah. it. Anyway. What, uh, a, what a guy. You can pay me with some of your advice. Yeah, there you so, go. I, this year, I, I put my tomato trellises, and I used um, hog panels for trellising. Yes. 
and I put them over my strawberry bed. And I don't. I think that was a mistake, and I don't understand why though. Uh, where I had the tomatoes, I put different types of zucchini, melons, and all these things, and they're everything's struggling this year. And I don't know if it's, if it's because of global warming or or what, but uh, it's probably because of global warming. I mean, there's no other explanation really. Maybe it's because it's a hot summer, but that that sounds like conspiracy theory. We did reach, I live in the Sacramento area, we did reach 115 degrees yesterday. Ooh. Record, record high since 1925. Uh, but I, I find that hard to believe because there was no global warming back then. <laughs> so not i'm confused <laughs> and it's been extremely hot we've had several so, months of 95 to 105 consistently and we've had a very dry winter with three months of basically no rain so uh, and everything is very so you said dry. there were tomatoes and strawberries involved what went wrong what didn't work I don't know. I don't know if it's because of the dry summer, but I water everything with drip irrigation and I have wood chips all over the garden. But I, I planted tomatoes in between the, right with the strawberries. Yeah. And I'm trellising the, the tomatoes and using basically the strawberries to, as a ground cover that they keep the there weeds for down four or five and, years. Yeah. yeah. Right. Keeps the well, soil cooler. In theory, the weeds are right. And I'm and the tomato. The idea was to you know trellis the tomatoes, which would shade the strawberries, make them grow better. Because I used to use um, like shade cloth to shade out the strawberries in the summer, so they wouldn't just burn. And I still use the the shade cloth because it's been so hot. But the strawberry, the, the tomato plants are not growing. The tomato plants that came up on their own, where that where the tomatoes used to be. They're growing, not as well, but they're growing. Everything seems to be very stunted and very, it just suffers. I don't know if I, is it the weather or is it is under fertilized or it was planting, interplanting? Was I, that a mistake? I don't think it was the interplanting. I, there are a lot of examples of being able to interplant and actually get huge benefits from that. Probably the most famous. Have you ever heard of the Three Sisters? Right, yes. Yeah, so Native Americans tended to always grow these three plants together, and it's actually called a Three Sisters Garden. Um and there are benefits to doing it. It actually, it's a lot less work. The three sisters are, are basically beans, corn, and squash. And by planting them right. together, the the corn shelters the squash because it doesn't need a lot of sun. And the beans add nitrogen to the fertilizer and the squash can use the stalks of corn to grow up so you don't have to trellis. I mean, that was a very common way of growing for the Native Americans. Um, when I used to do pea tunnels, you know, I would let the pea vine grow up over this little hoop tunnel kind of thing. And then mm -hmm. you, could, you could grow greens under that because the greens don't like all that sun. So the peas trellises would shade the greens so i don't think growing them together was the problem my thought on this is it's the heat 
the heat is really, really hard on plants. Um, now, if you live in Arizona or Texas and you grow those varieties or, you know, Death Valley and, you know, you might be able to do okay with some of those. But a lot of times we just might get the wrong variety and it just doesn't like that much heat. I do play around with varieties. I get my seeds from uh, some company in Missouri. Uh, rareseeds.com, I think, is the website. And I every year I get a little bit something a little different just to play around. And uh, the sunflower, I, I have 10 called sunflowers, and they're loving it. Oh, I'll bet. Uh, yeah. But, but not a lot of things are, the melons are doing okay, and a bunch of other things have bugs on them. So it's a very strange year. Um. Yeah, it's bizarre. You know that's. Uh, but I heard you talking about making compost tea. Uh, are you just using the uh, warm castings, or are you doing anything else? So I or, have. Uh, are you just putting it in a bucket? Well, I'll give you the exact recipe, and if you go to this website, Doctor. So it's D R Jim's. D-R-J-I-M-Z, drjims.com. It's a gardening site. The guy specializes in tomatoes, and that's where I got started buying his plant foods and other things for tomatoes, and the results were incredible. So he makes this stuff, and I love the name of it. Remember the book, um, Chicken Soup for the Soul? I've heard about it, yeah. Yeah, it was a big thing. And then there were 10 different versions, chicken soup for kids. His his plant food, his organic plant food, he calls it chicken soup for the soil. It's just an awesome name, I think. This stuff is amazing. Um, I buy it in half-gallon jugs. So when I make my compost tea, I use a five-gallon bucket. I put eh, roughly two handfuls of warm poop in the bottom. And then I pour in a quart of this plant food. And then fill up the bucket with water. And depending on the temperature, I'll let it sit four or five days. Um, It ferments and makes amazing probiotics. And then that's just what I spray all over the garden uh, every week. And it's doing amazing this year. Everything I've researched on making compost tea, uh, everyone says that you need to have aeration and produce fungally dominated compost. So I built a brewer out of a 25 gallon uh, garbage can, essentially. Uh, I, I got the idea, I copied basically everything a guy on, on, on the YouTube did, uh, and I got a mix, like a pre-mix mix out of, uh, from a company in Santa Rosa, California called Boogie Brew. And the website is boogiebrew.com. A bunch of potheads just uh, making supplements uh, for that industry, yeah, right? Uh, but it uses it uses a pump to pump air, and I have plumbed out of just regular half inch PVC pipe a ring on the bottom of the uh, trash can, and it's susp- I have a stainless steel mesh bag that's suspended like a tea bag with a, a pipe aerating the inside of the tea. Uh, of the, the tea bag and the mixture, a two part mixture, you make, let it sit for an hour and dump it in there and you brew it for 48 hours or 24 hours, whatever. And it's supposed to be 
I'll bet that works really good. Oh, I could see. I I like that idea. I may have to try that. I think that would work really well. I, you know, I just set my buckets outside in the garden. And every time I walk by them, I stir them. I just leave a stick in there. And every time I walk by, I stir it. The okay. idea of aerating that, that provides it. Some I, yeah. The idea of aerating it the whole time, I think, is an awesome idea. Yeah. And it's really simple because the, the pump just plugs. You, you got to play with some fitting. But uh, I think I don't remember if I'm, I may be getting things mixed up. I think they called it the university brewer or something because it was designed by some professor at the university. I don't yeah, remember, I'm, but if you type that into so, YouTube, I'm sure it will come up. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I think that's an awesome idea. Here's the difference, and I just learned this recently. You know, I've always heard that compost tea is like the most nutritious thing you could put on your plants. Like there's nothing better to feed your plants with. Well, it turns out if well, you, can you pee on it. If, yeah, if you look at the the um, fertilizer value of compost tea, you know, there there are the three big nutrients we try to feed to plants to get them to grow. Right. Conventional farming uses synthetic versions of those three, and that's why it's so horrible. Right. But even organic natural plant food will normally give you the reading of how much of those three nutrients are in their plant food. What I learned about um, compost tea is it's almost zero. There's almost no nutrients in compost tea. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why is this so good for my plants? It, it's almost zero, zero, zero. And I thought, well, that, what? that doesn't make sense. Well, this isn't to feed the plants. This is basically the probiotics for the plants. That's what compost tea is. Well, it doesn't really have any fertilizing well, it's value to, feed the fungal to it. Fungal and bacterial life right. in the soil. Right. So it's adding the bacteria. It's feeding the bacteria, and then those bacteria perform certain jobs. And one of them is you need about one third of the amount of fertilizer because the bacteria makes the plant so efficient at using it. So what this this Dr. Jim's recipe, it kind of just takes two steps and puts them into one. We're, 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 you know, fermenting the compost tea, but we're throwing the plant food in there too, which feeds the bacteria somewhat, but then it also actually creates a, a nutrient value in this, in this mix, in this tea. So now when I spray it, I'm feeding and giving it the probiotics. I'm going to definitely check out that website. One more question. Uh, uh, organ meat, as far as uh, usually you talk about beef organ meat, what about pig organs? Um, how are they for they to eat? Is any issue? I mean, I, my own pig that I slaughter, my, feed and slaughter myself, so I know what's in yeah. it. Organ meats of all animals, all animals are edible. And they're the most nutritious part of every animal. The reason we focus primarily on organs from cows, I think there's probably two reasons. We have a lot of them. And they are the most nutritious. When you look at beef liver, beef liver has more nutrition than pork liver. Pork liver has more nutrition than chicken liver. So I think we focus on beef because it's the most nutritious. But you should be eating organ meats from any animals. And absolutely, if you have your own, 
Yeah, eat them. Pork liver is excellent. So wouldn't be a problem to wouldn't be a problem to grind up the kidneys, the liver, and the heart into sausage. Oh, sausage. not a not at all. That would be awesome. Uh, what about the brain? I I know there could be some uh, issues with the uh, big brain. You know, I, I, I'm not going to eat it because I just don't want to, you know, be diagnosed at, at 90 with some parasite. <laughs> I picked up full of things, you know, but what about giving it to my dog? I, I don't know. Do you the want your, love the lungs? Do you want your dog diagnosed with some weird? No, here's the thing. I, there, well, it's going to be a, a, a test, uh, test uh, of the brain. See if, dog comes down with something yeah so here's the thing we I'm have kidding. gotten i'm joking i, I, I know getting upset. <laughs> i know we get we get freaked out about brains and eating them because of the whole mad cow disease thing and but we've been eating brains forever um i know in a lot of cultures i'm trying to remember which cultures it is um scrambled eggs and brains it's like a very, very common dish because when you cook brain, it kind of has the same texture as scrambled eggs. So the two go really well together. And that's almost always pork brain when they do that. Interesting. Look that up. Mm-hmm. Look up pork brain and nope. eggs. It's a common <laughs> dish. No, nope. I definitely will. All right. Thanks, Kevin. That's all I've got. You're welcome. That's all I need. Good stuff. Uh, Lauren, what else you got? What should we wrap this up yeah. with today? Hmm. Um, let's see. We had some really good calls today, didn't we? we uh, today was a great day. And it really does. I, you know, I always wonder if people want to keep hearing about the garden. I talk about it all the time because I'm out there and I love it. And I'm, my today was another life lesson from the garden. Um, and mm-hmm. we did get a ton of feedback. This is what everybody wanted to talk about. Yeah. Oh, here's, a, here's another one. I just went and looked this up. Um, there's a company called Rose. They make Rose brand, and I'm looking at the can, pork brains with milk gravy, and on the can, the picture is with scrambled eggs. Whoa. There you go. Yeah. That's a pretty- I don't think I've ever had brains. I have had it once, and it was beef brain, and I had a really high-end restaurant, and it was really, really good. Really good. What do they call it? If I remember like is, right, like, it what, just how do they said, refer to it? If I remember right, it just said brain. I don't think there was any other name for it. Oh. Huh. Yeah. I I don't yeah, I don't remember any other name. Um I guess it's pretty big in the South here in the US, but I thought there was there was like a certain culture Portuguese maybe um probably yeah but it's a it's a big thing I mean Brazil you you can buy pig brains in a can huh interesting yeah Brazil maybe that's that's what I'm thinking of maybe it's more of a South American thing because 
chitlins are intestines, right? Correct. Yep. Yeah, that's okay. a, that's yeah, definitely an American Southern thing. Yeah, chitlins. Yeah, <laughs> chitlins and gravy. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I've eaten them. I've eaten them. You know what you're eating I, too. I've only had. Yeah, you can definitely see that they are perfect little intestines. I had only yeah. eaten intestines once, and it was in Vietnam. Okay. And it was at a house, and it was just, I was motoring through and stopped at a house, and that's all they had, so that's what I got. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was I mean, it tasted good. I, I know, it does. <laughs> Looking at them, like, the, it was kind of a weird thing, but... <laughs> the only organ I have trouble with, and you could probably cook it to get rid of this, but the problem for me is I like to do all my own cooking, and while you're cooking, this is a problem. Kidney. I just can't do the kidney thing. Mm, why is that? Kidneys smell exactly what you think they should smell like. Ugh. Like they're processing, detoxing things from the body that don't need to be there. <laughs> no, that the, they they smell exactly like urine. No, they don't. They absolutely do. Ooh, it's awful. I don't think I, I don't know how eat anybody that. eats them. I, I can handle some pretty weird stuff. Brains don't bother me at all. I like liver. I just cannot do. The kidney thing, I've tried. I just cannot deal with that smell. Wow. Yeah, I uh, I, I don't think I could either. <laughs> That's oh, good to know. Lisa just sent me something kind of funny since we're talking about brains. Um, she was looking it up. and she, Here's the sentence. It says, one company still sells canned pork brains. Rose brand pork brains with milk gravy come in a five-ounce can. We should note, get this, we should note that canned brains aren't exactly healthy, at least if you're counting sodium and cholesterol. Well, I'm not. I could care less about sodium and cholesterol. So brains are really healthy for you. Brains are really good for your brain. All the nutrients you need in your brain, they're going to be in the brain of the animal you ate. So isn't it crazy? There we go. That, and this is new. It I mean, is. this is just this year that somebody wrote this, and that's still what people focus on. They're going to tell you not to eat those brains because of the sodium and cholesterol, but they'll tell you go scarf down a bowl of Quaker oats. Yeah, <laughs> and watermelon is number one on the exactly. list. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You gotta love it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and oh my God! Well, don't a- don't you dare mix those brains with eggs. The cholesterol is going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are clearing out our freezer of venison from last season because we're get coming up on the start of a new season here, and. I had some venison shoulder, like a shoulder roast that I had to cook up. And I made that yesterday and it was so good. Isn't it? You know, we... Um, question. Yeah, go ahead. How do you thicken? Do you use arrowroot instead of um, flour to thicken up a sauce? Yes. Arrowroot is my favorite. Um, The one thing you have to be a little careful with with arrowroot... Make sure you thicken your sauce as the last step in your meal prep. 
because the longer okay. arrowroot sits in the sauce, it will actually start to break down. If you cook it too much, it'll break down and start to get thin again. Oh. So oh, it'll get thinner. It'll get okay. So it doesn't get thicker. It'll be so here's the, the here's sauce. what okay. yeah here's what would happen. So I, I use the arrowroot just like I use flour to make a roux. So if I want to thicken a sauce, yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah I use root. it just okay. like flour. So the first step is butter and arrowroot, and I stir it over low heat, just like I would flour to make a roux, and it'll start to darken, just like uh, uh, a flour-based roux would. But for me, if I'm doing, say, you know, Cajun-style cooking, I will my roux will take almost an hour to make. And it's a lot of work. You got to stand there and, and work on it the whole time, just about. But I will make what they call a dark chocolate roux. You know, you can have a butterscotch roux, and it's all based on the color and how long you cooked it. I do like a dark chocolate roux. I cook it for like an hour, and the flavor is just amazing. You can't do that with arrowroot. Okay. At, at at barely, oh, we can. want like a a honey colored roux is about as far as you can take an arrowroot because it will thicken up till that point. And then all of a sudden you're stirring and it starts getting thinner and thinner. Oh, good to know. Okay. But you can make a regular roux with yep. arrowroot. Yep. Just, just don't cook it too much. Step. Leave it like a light colored honey is about as far as you want to take it. Okay. Awesome. Good to know. Yeah. Cause, uh, I made the most incredible sauce and we were sitting down and eating it last night and we could have bought, we could have went to a very nice Italian restaurant and ordered that and thought it was the best thing ever. Oh, and it was just so amazing. Yeah. That sounds I, so good. And of course, you know, I didn't follow any recipes that I never do. So we just hope that I can figure out how to duplicate it at some point because I don't even know what I put in it. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the joke around here. Um, the joke around here is, man, that was an amazing dish. We'll never have it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, I know. We, we might have I something. Up my phone and I started taking notes. Yeah, we might have something kind of like it, but we'll never have this dish again. I don't use recipes. I cook with whatever is on hand at the time. You know, I, I can make chili. Mm -hmm. From ketchup as the base, I could make chili from spaghetti sauce as the base. I could make chili from um, tomato juice as the base. I, I, and, you know, that's just how I cook. There's, there's lots of different ways to make the same kind of dish. And whatever I happen to have at the time is what's going in there. Yeah, exactly. I, that's, that's exactly how it is at my house. So yeah. It, we um, we had an incredible dinner, but hopefully I can duplicate it at some point. <laughs> yeah, so when we talk about food or I post about food, then of course everybody wants a recipe. And I get it. I, I understand. Yeah. And I'm horrible at recipes. I don't use them. And it's a lot of work to create a recipe. 
It's a lot of work. I mean, you have to test it oh, multiple yeah. times. Oh, yeah. No, that didn't work. So now I got to try this. You got to measure everything. You got to write it all down. I, I don't do that. And then people ask for a recipe and I'm like, I don't use recipes and I tried to make them and it's so time consuming. So basically, if you ask me for a recipe now, here's what you're going to get. I do answer and I tell people, I don't use recipes. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a list of ingredients and I'll sort of put it in the order of most to least. And that's my mm-hmm. recipe. And if there are a couple instructions, yeah. I'll try to write them down. But for like the most part, the fermentation recipes I was doing the other day, there isn't really any steps. You throw all the stuff in a pot, you mix it up, you stick it in a jar. So I said, look, here's like they, everybody wanted the fermented salsa recipe. Well, here it is. And this is as good as it's going to get. Now, you've been building recipes. I know we want to do more. But for me, this is as good as it's going to get. I said, here's my fermented salsa recipe. Tomato is the base. There's going to be more tomato in it than anything else. And I like Roma or paste tomatoes for making salsa. They're nice and meaty. Um, Then Mm -hmm. onion. Then peppers of some kind and i used jalapeno and habanero in mine just base it on how much heat you want and then cilantro and then garlic and then lime and salt that's everything that goes into my salsa so take all those ingredients mix them up until you like the taste of it that's the best i can do on recipes yeah and then to make it fermented Add a little bit of extra salt. It should taste slightly salty. And then stick it in jars and let it sit on the counter for four days and taste it. Mine, I actually tend to leave out about 10 days is how long I leave salsa. But in three or four, it's fermented. The longer you leave it, it tends to get that nice tangy flavor. So if I make fresh salsa Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to ferment it, I usually add a little bit of apple cider vinegar to my salsa. It gives it that nice little bite and it just really kind of balances everything out. Fermenting does the same thing. So I'd like mine to, mm-hmm. to stay in there longer and get a little more tart. And it's really, So for me, it's about 10 days. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, sounds about right. Yep. I mean, and- in terms of not being able to, you know, give someone the perfect recipe. And that's the thing. You know, you've seen how I how I write my recipes. You know, I give a general rule, but for the most part, you kind of have to figure out what works good for you. Because, and and I told you that's why I can't bake because I cannot follow a recipe. <laughs> I'm the same way. Yeah, I just can't. Very, I just, <laughs> very few people. There are very few people that I know that are both really good cooks and really good bakers. It's usually one or the other. Yeah. And I'm definitely on the cook Agreed. side. Baking is precise. You have to measure things. I, I, I just, I can't do it. Um, oh, yeah. I, yeah. Now, here's the reason. You know, I've said before that take the best chef in the world or your favorite chef, whoever it is. Maybe it's Gordon Ramsay or Bobby Flay or whoever. And if Gordon Ramsay gives me his exact recipe and I can even stand there and watch him do it, well, then shouldn't Mm -hmm. I be able to create that exact dish? You never will. Never. 
Why not? Well, there's a couple variables here. The first variable is that we don't all like the same things. A great example of this that I always have to try to balance when I cook, I love really acidic foods. I could squeeze lime almost Mm. over everything to add a little bit of acidity to it, and I would like it. Lisa's at the other end of the scale. She doesn't like acidic foods. So I have to find that balance. When I make a salad dressing, I have to, if I taste it and I like it, I know she won't. If I taste it and it's a little too mild for me, doesn't have enough bite, then she's probably going to like it. So the answer is make the salad dressing the way she likes it. And then I add a little extra vinegar for mine. But there's that, you know, there's the variable that we don't like the same things. So you may not like my recipe, but if you know how to adjust it a little bit, you may love it. And then there's the other big variable that most people don't think about. Writing recipes has a problem. And the problem in writing a recipe for anybody, if you write a recipe, you just wrote the recipe based on the ingredients you had on hand that day. The next day, my tomatoes may not be as acidic as they were the day before. My carrots might be sweeter. So the variance in ingredients is why most recipes don't work well. It's just a starting point. And then you have to learn how to adjust flavors. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? That's the real reason why recipes are just a starting point and nothing else. Um, Lisa's screening calls today, so she gets very involved in the show. She's sending me all kinds of messages. So um, (laughs) I want to go back and see. Oh, when we were talking about the arrowroot for thickening, she says it's also the best for frying and coating. And it is. That's what we use anytime we're going to coat something or fry it. We use arrowroot. Yeah, like dredge it. Yeah. Yep. Dredge Just use arrowroot. Oh, nice. Yeah, it works. No. It, it's actually, I like it better than flour. It's actually, it comes out more like tempura. It's a really light coating. Mm, I prefer that then for sure. Exactly. Yeah. And then, of course, she has to brag that when it comes to tasting, her taste buds are better than mine. They are way better. She's like a super taster. <laughs> yeah. And I'm the opposite. I've heard that. Yeah, she's, heard a, that she's a super taster. I don't, uh, I'm the opposite. I can eat almost anything because I don't have really sensitive taste buds. Got it. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. So I'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll taste a dish at a restaurant and I'll go, man, that's good. I should try to figure out how to make this. And she'll go, well, it has this and this and this. And I'll be like, how do you know? I can taste it. She can pull out individual ingredients. That's amazing. I can't, I have a hard time doing that as well. I can't. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. So many, many times. I have to look at it. Here, yeah, here, here's what happens many, many times. I'll, I like the creative part of creating recipes from scratch. You know, sometimes I'll look up recipes just to give me ideas and then I'll work on something. That's what and, I, yeah. I, so I have, I collect, I love recipe books, cookbooks. I love them. We have them all over the house, but I almost never cook the recipe out of the book. I just look for some ideas in there and then. Yeah, I don't of, think I ever have. Yeah. And then throw it together. We did once. <laughs> 
Um, and this was a fun project, but I'd probably never do it again. And I had mentioned Bobby Flay earlier. Uh, Bobby Flay came out with a new cookbook. He had just opened a new restaurant in uh, New York. I think it's called Bar American. And that the he brought out a cookbook based on that the the menu from that um, restaurant. So we got the cookbook and we thought, hey, you know what would be fun? Let's do, because we don't cook like that from recipes, even though we have all these books. So we said, what if we took from Bobby Flay's book, and, and, and Bobby Flay, by the way, is one of the more complicated chefs. Lots of ingredients, lots of specialty techniques. So we said, what if we took an appetizer, an entree, and a dessert, and we cook them exactly like it is in the restaurant, like no substitutions. We have to go find every single ingredient, no matter how minor. We're going to do it exactly like the book. And we did, two of us. It took us probably eight hours to make those three dishes. And we were done. We were so exhausted. We waited till the next day to eat it. And that's how bad it was. Oh my god! It was so much Can work. You, yeah. Oh. Oh, I bet. I bet. Oh yeah. my gosh, that is hilarious. So that's why I just don't. I I think I may have. Like, I must have at some point right, followed right. a recipe and realized that it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> right. Yeah. It just doesn't. Like literally, the food does not taste good. No. So, um, and and it's and it's the liquids. The liquids are always off. Right. It's like too liquidy or not enough. And so you know right off the bat that it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And then the flavors won't be exactly right. And, you know, it's, and it's because of when you're cooking with real food, real food is never consistent. Never. It's all over no. the board. <laughs> yep. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, so one of the hardest cuisines I've tried to learn how to cook is Thai. And the reason is the flavors they use are wildly different from every other cuisine. You know, when you think about it, how far off really is Italian from Mexican? It's not all that different. There's a lot of similarities. I guess not. There's a lot of similarities. And then we could throw in Tex-Mex, which is different than both, but still a lot of similarities. And there are lots of cuisines that are close. When you get to some of the Asian cuisines, they're nothing like, and they use totally different ingredients, totally different seasonings. And Thai food, there's one skill to master. And the rest of it is easy. In Thai food, and I love Thai food. It might be one of my favorites. It is Same. the the secret to why Thai food is so good is because they balance the salty, sweet, tart, and umami. And spice. Yeah, and and heat gets yeah. thrown in there too. But then we have that umami thing, um, and the whole trick to getting Thai food right is getting those balanced. The problem for me is I don't have enough experience eating it when I taste it to know what's out of balance. You know, in in almost every other cuisine, if I taste something, I know it needs more garlic right away or it needs more onion or it needs more pepper or I just from experience. 
when I taste something and it's off, I yeah. know how to adjust it. When I try to cook Thai food and I taste it and it's off, I have no idea what to do. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I guess I guess so. Do you not have good Thai restaurants or we don't we had one little thai restaurant that was probably about 45 minutes away and every time i would go there the it was a young um thai woman that owned it she would always comment she's like you drive so far from my food like it's really good food um yeah so but they would always comment on it and, you know, Lisa would call and right away they knew who she was. And I mean, we do it, you know, once every couple of weeks The they kind of shut down during the pandemic. I, I'm so sad when I look Aww, around at all the businesses that have closed. That restaurant's still there. Their their hours seem to be weird. And I, I, I honestly don't trust restaurants anymore. I'm afraid of our food supply. Yeah, honestly. I know. They, it, their restaurants aren't busy enough. Their food's sitting around too long. I just really don't like eating out much anymore. Yeah, I feel you. So other than that, the yeah. couple of Thai restaurants we've tried just haven't been that great. Um, unfortunately, I got spoiled uh-huh. the first time I ever had Thai food. Um, and it was as an adult. It was when I was living in Orlando. Uh, I had an office in town. I didn't really work there, but I had an employee who did. And I would stop in once in a while right next door. And it was, it had, it used to be a house that got converted to a restaurant, tiny little thing. I went in there and had Thai food for the first time. I was blown away. I ate there like four days in a row after that. It was so good, but it also kind of spoiled me because wow. I've almost yeah. never found Thai food quite that good again. Well, that's the thing with Thai food is it, when you find a place, you just cherish it because they are not all the same. That's for sure. No. You get yeah. really good ones, mostly not so great ones. And here's the thing. It, it's, it, you know, if, if Mexican food is just so-so, I can still eat it and really enjoy it. I've had crazy high-end mm-hmm. Mexican that is amazing, but middle-of-the-road Mexican food, I can eat that and really enjoy it. Thai food for me, it's either yeah. really good or I'm not eating it. I totally agree with you. There's for like, whatever reason. Yeah, there's like nothing in between. If you don't get it right, I don't even want to eat it. Yep. Yeah, because for me, Mexican food my favorite Mexican is the most authentic, the very simple Mexican food. And then you have, you know, places that, which we don't even have in Florida. There's, I don't even know of one really authentic Mexican restaurant around, which is such a bummer. Because in California, they're everywhere. Oh, but, yeah. And Texas. Oh, yeah. Texas, Arizona, yeah. New Mexico. And all of them have slightly different styles. Like Mexico is a lot like the United States. There are wildly different styles of cooking in the country of Mexico. Yeah, I agree. You know, we tend to get that generic yeah. kind of burrito, taco, you know, those kind of things. But like the... Um, Oh, I forget what region is it right now. There are a couple regions in Mexico where the food is almost dominated by seafood. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, I 
haven't had much experience with that, though. Nobody has. For some reason, the, the seafood style of Mexican never really took off in the U.S., there are some fish dishes that are traditional Mexican. I'm trying to think of some of the names of them right now that are just fantastic. But we don't think much about seafood when we think about Mexican. No. About the only thing that got popular, and even that's not really popular all over the U.S., but, you know, go to Southern California and fish tacos are everywhere. Yes, you're and right. And I love fish tacos. <laughs> Same. Yeah. You can't go wrong. I mean, you can't go wrong. Don't oh, get me wrong. Oh, but um, yeah. <laughs> Good fish tacos. Yes. Oh my god. Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah, they really are. Mm, you're making me hungry. I know. I. I. You know. I. I kind of like this whole gardening food kind of show. I know, me too. <laughs> I wish I could offer more with the gardening stuff, though. <laughs> oh, I know. Which I just remembered which um, region in Mexico does a lot of seafood. Veracruz. Oh, okay. Yeah, they yeah. do. They do a. Um, uh, I don't know what the name of this is, or I probably know, but I can't pronounce it. They do a fish dish that's. Um, it's usually a whole red snapper, and red snapper is one of my favorites. And you can throw a line in the water in Florida and pull red snapper out all day. Um, they make a dish. It's a whole red snapper. It's cooked in a spicy tomato sauce. And then they actually add, and, and this is a little weird, they actually add green olives to it. That's like a Veracruz thing. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I add green a, olives to some of my Cuban cooking. Yeah, it's a, the, the Veracruz style of seafood, I think you would probably find very similar to Cuban. Cool. Very neat. And then there's ceviche. Love it. I love, love, love ceviche. So, yeah. And um, in Veracruz, they do a lot with shrimp. So you see a lot of shrimp dishes. Oh, I need to get some more shrimp dishes, actually. We have really fresh um, shrimp right out right out here in front of the house. Like, you see the shrimping boats all the time. And we get great local shrimp. So I just need to get more creative with what I can make with it. Yeah. Yeah, you can do a lot with shrimp. Um, shrimp ceviche is excellent. Yeah, that's and, true. And for shrimp ceviche, I like to use those tiny little bay shrimp. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love ceviche. That's one of my favorite dishes. Same. <laughs> yeah. The Wall Street Journal had a, had a recipe over the weekend. They didn't call it ceviche, but it was scallops, and they sliced them thin into like three pieces, and they used buttermilk, which I would never have thought. And uh, I don't remember what else, and it looked so good. It was like topped with olive oil and citrus. Oh my gosh. That's... I have to look it back. I have to dig it up because it, it looked so good. That does sound really good. There's uh, another kind of form of ceviche. Have you ever heard of tiger's milk? Yes, I yeah. have. Is that when they use the coconut? I think it's like Peruvian. It is Peruvian. Yep, absolutely. 
Yeah, they throw in some yeah, some other delicious. citrus and some yeah, and it's looks kind of like milk. And a lot of times they'll just take the the juice, kind of like we were talking about drinking the brine out of a ferment. They'll just drink the brine, and they call that tiger's milk. Mm. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really good. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's one of my favorites, actually. I do that sometimes when we're in the in the islands and we catch some fish, and I make ceviche. I, I use uh, ginger and coconut milk. Oh yeah, so good, so good. I love putting multicolored peppers in mine. So I'll take green, red, yeah. orange, yellow, purple, every pepper I can find, and dice them up really small. And then mix it all in there. It's it looks yeah. so nice, so colorful. Have you ever had conch salad? Yes, in the in Key West. Yeah, they do that with they they dice all the peppers and the onions and everything really really small, and they add some spice and you know a lot of citrus. That is that's one of my favorite things to have in the islands too. Yeah, yeah. I need to get we need to get some land closer to the ocean again. I miss all that really good seafood. I know. It is such a treat. Yeah. We might actually go get seafood just uh, tonight. Oh, yeah. I hope we do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right. So, uh, is it really afternoon? It is. It's, uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's 3.15 over here. <laughs> I've done I four hours a, today with a, no break. <laughs> wow. Well, it was a, a good day. day then. It was a good day. So I think for I me, have a, I a mean, call. yeah, so we'll let you go. We're going to skip the um, live Q&A today. We've done enough today. Um, and you've got calls to get on to. I've got something I should be doing, I'm sure. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm sure. sure there's something. All right. So anything you want to wrap up with? No, I think, I think we're good. That was such a great show. So much food talk. I'm going to have to get me something before I sit down on my call. But yeah, that was a, a great talk. Good day. Looking Loved forward it. to next week. All right. We'll wrap this Thanks. up. And uh, we'll do it again next week. We'll also see you back here tomorrow for uh, Free For All and Rolling Toe. Looking forward to Friday's show. We'll find out if Joel and John can join us. Last week, I was all set to do the show on Friday. I was excited about it. I had a lot I wanted to talk about. And the time came and I hit the button and total silence. And I thought, all right, what did I do wrong? And I played around with a couple things. I couldn't figure it out. Turned out I had a bad cable. How does that happen? Oh, I mean, the, the equipment sits here on my desk. Nothing moves. How did the cable go bad? So I missed last Friday's show. We didn't do it at all. So kind of looking forward to it this week. So we will see you then. Have a great day. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.